it makes me feel good that it, you know, I think your guys' dynamic is very similar to yeah. mine and my dad's and yours yeah. and your dad's as well. Yeah. So you guys feel good. You have normal dads now, right? Yeah. That's right. Uh, we reaffirmed. We reaffirmed it at this point. <laughs> yeah. At least I'm not the only one who's been frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> and we're back. Hey, Hunter Podcast. Oh, back in studio. I have no. Fifty six. Okay. Episode fifty six. When do we stop counting? Well, we have a bunch of ATA ones rolling out, so that's what kind of threw me off because um, ATA just happened. We recorded a bunch. No, I'm saying at some point we should just stop counting. Oh, 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 oh. <clears throat> Joe still counts. Who? Rogan. Oh. <laughs> We're on a first-name basis. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> We're on a first-name basis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we got to keep track. Yeah, well, it, we don't have to actually say the episode number, um, but for purposes of keeping track, we'll keep track. It's good to be back. Good to be back in studio. Uh, the last time you saw us in studio, we made the threat that it may be the last Hunter podcast, but we are reassembled. Uh, yeah, with with uh, extreme ease. Yeah, Colton did a great job setting up, tearing down, mm-hmm. and we're back. We just we rolled in this morning. All of our stuff was still in the back of the truck, so yes, unloaded everything this morning, set everything back up. And, yeah, uh, I pulled my ass out of quarantine uh, yesterday after a negative test. Yeah, uh, the three of us are remaining positive because we're negative. Yeah, uh, feeling good, and uh, can't say the same for a lot of people from the ATA show. Yeah, lots everybody's of, doing all right out there. Lots of positive tests flying around. Not but listen to this podcast from the couch. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, but it'll. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we were just kind of touching base with the guests today on it. You know, ATA was good for us. We had some good podcasts, and you guys are going to see these things rolling out. Um, but you know, kind of sad in the same way to see, you know, that industry show is definitely on its last leg. Um, whether it comes back in 23, I don't, I, they'll have to make some serious adjustments if so. Um, but it is January 13th today. Um, I got a cool buck on camera in Kentucky just yeah, over did. the last 24, 36 hours. We're about to pull off what, what's never been done is, is two close friends killing two he, she bucks <laughs> in their lifetime. I mean, that's a buck of a lifetime for sure. Just in terms yeah. of rarity. Yeah, so if you uh, if you're listening to this, you may have to dive back a little bit on our Instagram or Facebook. But I made a post um, on there of this. Um, it looks like a mainframe eight would probably what it is. Deer looks ancient with some trash and stuff. I mean, he's got a, like a downturn oh, yeah. beam and yeah, a couple kicker drops and it and like nine inch bases. And so what, essentially, what it is is like this buck just is continuing. Uh, we talked about it with um, with your buck yeah. with Fuzzy Wuzzy. The deer's gonna have like. Uh, over 50 some inches of mass he's gonna have like pushing 60 inches of mass yeah because he just he clearly is just growing every year over top of the existing rack um yeah it just looks good and this is what's cool about that property is i border all this um you know national forest and you'll be national forest down there in eastern kentucky and like i mean it's huge ground hundreds of thousands of acres of timber and I assume that deer just eventually was like, I'm hungry and found our property, you know, and, and ventured into it. So um, I've got what we talk about till Monday. Um, I'm supposed to be at SHOT Show this week, next week. But we've got, uh, number one, we're dodging COVID. Number two, like an impending snowstorm here Sunday into Monday in most of the East Coast. In fact, uh, my wife Emily was just texting me. Her friend in South Carolina is supposed to get like 8 to 12 inches Saturday to Sunday. So, I mean, it sounds like it's going to engulf the whole East coast. So if that's the case as of tomorrow, 
Uh, I think I'm going to pull Audible, try to get to the cabin Saturday. And that gives me like two days to kill that deer before the season ends on Monday. Maybe. Be, be a hell of a way to, to shut her down. Um, he daylighted last night. I sent you the picture. Mm-hmm. So he's there. He's hanging tight. Um, so maybe um, it's a possibility. So we'll see. Uh, but it's cool, you know, just to know that there's a deer like that in the area. Like I said, yeah, he probably has 50 inches of mass. The rest of them is probably, a, a you know, 115-inch mainframe. Um, yeah, he's got like a 100-inch frame. It's not a giant <laughs> yeah. frame deer by any means. But he's got, yeah, he's got some just really cool, cool character. And it ancient. You got to remember, take some, take some valve lock with you. Yeah, when you go for sure. Yeah, and but just ancient. Like I'm sure if we killed him and pulled a jawbone, like nothing, nothing left of that deer. Yeah. So, um, Frick, that reminds me, I have that jawbone at my house. I was supposed to bring it today. Mm. Yeah, we need to pull up for the deer age stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll get it. Um. So, anyways, that's kind of where we're at. Season is uh, winding down. Um. In fact, uh, so we've got guests today. And the season is closing Saturday for them in Missouri. So we've got uh, Sean and Rex Lechtel, uh from Heartland Bowhunter on. Sean's been on the podcast before. Yep, and Rex um, is his dad, the one that you're always seeing killing giant bucks. Yeah. That's why I asked him beforehand. I said, how does it feel to be the favorite Heartland Bowhunter? Well, and, and Rex, I think, killed a really good one. Was it right before Christmas you the, and I were talking? This year, yeah. Yeah, because I think it was the day we were on podcast, and I just found those uh, sheds in PA, and I was like, yeah, you know, Sean's dad just, like, killed a really good one in Missouri. Yeah, well, and we've been meaning to catch up with Sean. Uh, the last time we talked to him was right before our mule deer hunt, mm-hmm. and because uh, he was right getting ready to head out to, I think, Nebraska or maybe Montana. Montana. Yeah, so we were just, um, you know, we were need to get caught up on that anyways, and so we, we figured we'd ask if... Uh, Pop, Papa, Papa Lacto wants to come on too and talk, you know, big Papa. talk about his uh, his big buck killing spree. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like Rex just got to their uh, camp in the in the northern part of uh, Missouri. And so, yeah, it, it good time of year to kind of catch a wrap up with these guys. And and because of how you, know, you and you and I both have really close hunting relationships with our dads. Um, to kind of, you know, bring that all into the mix and see how it, how theirs is like, or unlike ours. Yeah. Um, so I think it'll be pretty cool. So without further ado, Sean Rex. Hey. Hey. (laughs) You're on. We we still haven't figured out a good way to, to, to do that. Yeah. They'll like (laughs) tap you in and be like, Hey, we're coming back to you at this point, (laughs) you know? Welcome to the podcast guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Well, Sean's the veteran here, Rex. He's been through this ringer before. Um, we, we've uh, hopefully caught him in better times than the last time as his bow was essentially falling apart on him. <laughs> and the season was the season was pretty imminent at that point. Uh, yeah. But, but Sean, you recovered nicely. Uh, you, you were able yeah. to pull your composure together and, and, and you know, execute. I think it was the release. I, I was That's, thinking about that. Yeah, I, think it it was, was. I think it was both. <laughs> I think your trigger yeah. fell off your release and you were having an issue with your, your rest was loose as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. I, I remember, I remember that day I got a phone call too. Yeah. Yeah. We, we kind of <laughs> caught him in that moment and it, it was, think it was because you were leaving for Montana, maybe in like four days. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it worked out though. So yeah, I'm glad it, it all came together. It's amazing how many things can go wrong, you know, for, for as many times as you shoot your bow during the off season and um, that we spend fine tuning it and stuff. It seems like the day of or 
for for me when we got out to because you were heading to the to Montana and we were heading to the Dakotas. We were gonna hunt South Dakota for the very first time. And uh <clears throat> so on these these Hoyts, we're shooting these these carbon RX fives and on the bottom they've got a Hoyt mix that's called the SL sidebar mount. And yeah. uh, it, it's for that rear stabilizer to mount directly to the riser. And uh we we obviously didn't have any like input on that design or anything like that, but we got all the way out to South Dakota, and uh, as I was screwing in that SL sidebar mount, I stripped it out, and um, so this, uh, the, because there's only a you know two or three threads on that thing that that, that catches it, and, and it's a metal on metal type of thing too. Yeah, it was kind of, it was my you know it was my first time traveling with that thing, and so I I stripped it right out of there. And fortunately, I think Jeremy had a left uh, an extra one that I ended up using. But well, and we had an interesting thing there. Was it was it the the way that we attached that sidebar mount that you found that your yep. shooting was a little bit off? Yeah. So there's you know there's a spot on that riser that you're supposed to mount that sidebar mount, and it you know it works good, but there's there's only a handful of threads that we'll catch, which seems like an issue. Um, and so I to to gain more of those threads because I had plenty of that screw left over that weren't stripped. I moved it up to a different spot on the riser that seemed like even better. I was like, man, this, this seems like maybe even a better spot to mount this to. And, uh, that caused my bow to shoot like at 30 yards. I was like six inches low and left. And, <sighs> and it would just seemed like it was one of those mental things that it's like, there's no way that this point of contact on the riser is causing that. But I was like, shot with it on, shot with it off, shot with it on, shot with it off clearly was causing it something major to happen yeah. like, and not in a good way. And I mean, we're in, we're in the Dakotas like tomorrow's oh, yeah. opening day. We're on the hunt, which seems like it always goes that way. Yeah. But. So, and um, you know, yeah. I know, um, you know, Sean, I think you, you kind of touched in it in some of your videos when you were out there and, and we've hit it on the podcast, but man, the, the drought out in that area had just made such a massive impact on how we were used to deer moving out there or where they even were going to be located. Yeah, I had a tough time, real tough time um, finding gear. There was only, uh, so I had a few different properties that I could hunt and there was one property that they were on um, that was irrigated and uh, that, so they had a pivot, but there was cows on the pivot. They just moved cows onto that pivot and it, it really screwed with the deer and I was able to go on one stock and almost got it done. And um, blew the deer out of there and that's the one we saw that's the one we saw sean on social yeah and i could never find him him again um and then i went and actually started door knocking and because the the river was right there and uh, i'm trying to remember which river it even was but i think it may have been the yellowstone actually i can't um but anyhow anyhow um we uh knocked on some doors talked to one guy and like all the deer the whitetails at least um and some mule deer were down there on the river where where there's actually water and vegetation mm-hmm. and um i just couldn't could never find another place to hunt so ended up leaving but um yeah it was wild like the places that i've hunted have hunted out there before weren't really close to too much water and there was just pretty much nothing yeah it was crazy what was it just private access you were hunting to start yeah and I checked out some public, um, actually quite a bit of public, and I could never just really find anything that was worth going after. So. Yeah, man. Well, it, yeah, dude, we had all kind of fun getting it. I mean, the, the the travel aspect of a trip like that, especially for us, it's like 25 hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, makes it, uh, I guess you could say, add, adds to the fun. Like, yeah. Um, for us, we, we drove all the way out there, uh, and then I think it was like close to the Black Hills. We, we rented a, uh, a camper. 
Well, Jack, mm-hmm. Jack's camper rental is a yeah. giant facility yeah. down there. Uh, because that's right where they have Sturgis and stuff. And so they're, you know, they're used to out-of-towners. And so we, we picked up a camper there and drove, uh, by the time we got to our North Dakota spot, um, I, I, so I did most of my door knocking beforehand. I had made a bunch of calls. I spent way too many work hours making phone calls to just random North Dakota numbers. <laughs> and yeah. Trying to get permission, trying to find a place to stay. And like, you know, we made some great contacts because mm-hmm. that, that ended up saving our trip. We got a flat tire. I'll tell you about that here a little bit later, but nice to have contacts in the area. And uh, so when we got this camper to our, our campsite, which was just a guy's like homestead, he's like, yeah, I've got hookups and all this kind of stuff. You know, he did, but they were they were pretty rickety to begin with, and uh, we didn't have, like, the right hookups Yeah, and the stuff. converters and stuff. So we actually ended up in Montana, too. We drove over to Baker uh, to, like, an Ace Hardware uh, to pick up, like, a uh, a converter and uh, had a had an interesting encounter with a guy that was running that place. He's like, what's a—he's like, what do you mean, like, a male versus female end? And I was like, well, the male what? end has, like, prongs like this, and the female has, like, a receiving— <laughs> And uh, when we met the guy in person, it made, like, total sense. The yeah. guy's like, have you guys, like, ever been to Montana? And we're like, yeah, we're here right now. He's like, oh, right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, man. just some stoner kid who didn't have a real bright future ahead of him. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we drive out there, and he's sitting there with the wrong converter. And it's like, dude, we were super clear about what we needed. We drove out here because you told us you had it. And then, fortunately, they did, like, buried in the back room. And I was like, jeez. Yeah. It was yeah. an adventure. Always adventures on those trips. We didn't kill anything either, Sean, if it makes you feel any better. Did you guys see anything that you were trying to kill? Yeah, we hunted our butt off for sure. Um, well, in, so in South Dakota, um, I think on the second day, within probably 10 minutes of each other, Jeremy and I both had opportunities. Um in fact, it was like it was a weird deal. We went to South Dakota with some like tentative permission. A lot of those those people were like, "Well, yeah, you know what? Just when I, while you're out here, just stop in, and we'll you know, we'll see how it goes." I'm like, "Okay, cool." And we leased the piece of ground too, so that's where we set up base yeah. camp essentially. We had a lease, so we started the lease. It took us about a day to figure out the lease was shit. There's nothing on it, mm-hmm. and so we started yeah. we started going to some of this private and uh. The, the one that we had these encounters with, uh, it was kind of like a, they had like a farm office type situation and uh, knocked on the door and this lady comes out like waving her arm. She's like, don't come in. Don't come in. COVID, COVID. And we're like, oh, OK. Yeah. And uh, so I just from a distance explained who we were, what we're trying to do. And she's like, oh, you're fine. You'll be fine. She said, just go hunt. And I was like, are you sure? Like, um, you know, the, the guy that I talked to, I was pretty sure he wanted like 500 bucks a head type of deal or I don't know. I just wanted to make sure we were in the clear to go and do it. She's like, absolutely. You're hundred percent fine. Go do this. So we went out and uh, we'd already driven past the place. It saw deer, you know, it seemed like a good enough place to saw a lot of white tails, spend some time on a lot of white tails. And, uh, so we spent, I don't know, four, four hours hunting this whole drainage out before we got to this, you know, what seemed like a destination food source. And we're like, well, cool. Let's, we'll set up here. And, uh, as the night progressed, uh, long story short, I ended up missing a whitetail uh, at like 70 yards, and Jeremy ended up missing up, I don't know what, 150-ish type mule deer at a similar distance mm-hmm. probably, and uh, both of us like shot over the back, and then shortly thereafter, this guy comes ripping out, and we're probably a mile deep in oh, this yeah. property. This guy comes out in like a, f- a flatbed truck or something, and uh, 
you know, fi- finds Jeremy and basically says, hey, I'm kind of like the farm manager here. And, like, whoever gave you permission, like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> and uh, at that point, it was like, cool, bro. Like, we're, we're done anyways. We're leaving. Yeah, he's like, you didn't see this. Uh, I've got this real old white tail. He's kind of like this eight point with some kickers. And I was like, eh, yeah, I saw him. <laughs> yeah, came close. <laughs> I saw him. And uh, he also told me there were, like, no mule deer on the property. And I've. Like, close the distance on clearly, uh, like, a whole batch of group of mule deer. So, yeah, it's just real awkward. And, and the drought had just messed so much stuff up there. And we found that out when we went to North Dakota. It just, you know, where all the deer had been in previous years, there were none to be found. There was a lot of cattle, um, but that was it. Yeah. Man, that's sad. That's... I don't know how that's going to, you know, I, I don't know how long that'll take for that to recover. Like, you think that most of them died? Um, so they did uh, talk about when we left, we were starting to hear more and more rumors of EHD, you know, just massive EHD outbreaks in some of those areas. Uh, I think the big thing for us, and this was a North Dakota thing, but you know, we had hunted and had success in a lot of the big badland areas in North Dakota. This year, all of the deer that we saw had been pushed up to the grasslands and spot yeah. and stock in those grasslands was damn near impossible. I mean, we saw a we ton of bucks. We yeah. saw... 20 plus bucks a day, but I mean, you, you couldn't, it was impossible to stock them. Really? Just couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of being like under them shelves and stuff. So like in the, in the badlands, typically our strategy is you can kind of still hunt all the drainages, like from a distance, you can get up to a high point glass down in or, you know, peek over an edge and one out of every 50 or a hundred, like, you know, there'll be one there and you can kill them. Um, in the grasslands, like Jeremy said, we're seeing them everywhere. It's like, there's one on the distance here. You know, they'd come in behind us, but they would lay up on these just, they're just hillsides covered in, um, is it just sage or buck, mm-hmm. buck, yeah. buck brush? And it sage. wasn't buck brush because that's what they're feeding on. Sage. It was uh, sage. And it was just impossible to get a shot at them because we, we'd get in range and there's like a six foot wall of sage behind them in, in every direction. And and we would go, once, once we bumped them, we'd go into the bed and be like, oh, like here, here's the spot. Like no wonder there's no chance you could ever kill them out of these things. Mm-hmm. And it was about a, a week of that, just <laughs> getting close. A lot of mileage, a lot of bump and chase, bump and chase, and just came home empty-handed. Yeah. Dang, that's tough, man. I've been there. I mean, that's pretty much exactly how my Montana one went. Like, you drive a lot, and, you, yeah. you know, you're out there all day pretty much. And Yes. At the end of it, you're like, all right. This sucks. This isn't my <laughs> Well, here's what capped ours off. Last thing I'll say about our trip. It was day, I don't know, four, four, four or five, something yeah. like that. Uh, you know, we were already, we'd been hunting hard. We were kind of tired. Um, we were, there's like two roads that access, like from the town that we're staying in to w- where we're hunting at. It was probably a 20, 25 minute drive. Easily. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we get to our spot. It's like. It's still dark. You know, it's first thing in the morning. We get out of the truck. This is Jeremy's truck. He's got a big F-250 with some serious rippers on there. Some good tires. Nittos, I think. Mm -hmm. Brand new, I think. Yes. Ish. We get out, and I hear... Uh, sure enough i think it was our rear our our passenger side rear tire had a big like raptor tooth looking uh rock jammed all the way up in it and uh i had a bit of a breakdown at that point jeremy had a little (laughs) bit of a breakdown and i'm like so are we gonna hunt still or and uh yeah because i mean one you're like it you know it's just a gravel road and you're pulled off so you're already not level you know and and in that grass and stuff like good luck jacking that truck up to like get the tire off of it yeah 
you know? Yeah. So it's like, and, and you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, what are you going to do? So yeah. yeah, it took, we got the spare on. Yeah. So fortunately we had a spare, we got it on, but then we had a spare with no, you know, we had a tire, but no, no spare. So we were kind of like risking it. Yeah. You know, you don't want to do too much on that, but this is where the contacts come in handy is fortunately I had called some of the, the big land, you know, some of these guys own 10, 20,000 acres. It seemed like, uh, I was like, surely one of these guys has to have like a spare tire or has a connection. Fortunately in Baker, Montana, they've got a, uh, like a 24 hour emergency farm tire service. And so we were able to take it in. The guy fixed us up good. And it went from in the morning thinking like, Hey, we we might be done. Like we might be needing to drive Mm -hmm. home at this point to, we've got a couple more days out of it. And we still sucked, but yeah. Mm. It seems like somebody typically always gets a flat tire out there. I didn't, fortunately, this time, but I did almost rip my bumper off and um, high center my truck. And (laughs) fortunately, I didn't get high center because if I would have, I mean, we're not in cell service and we were probably, I think, like 40 miles away from the nearest town in the middle of the I mean, that's it. It, It's not... um you know, you're not in these like remote, like I'm packing up into the high country type hunts, but like just where you end up by trying to chase these deer, like you are remote. Yeah. Your vehicle's right there and you can get in it and you can drive back to your base camp every night. But I mean, it, you know, something happens, you're out there a long ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You're going to be walking a long ways if you don't have service. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. How Uh, many days did you guys hunt? uh, Seven or eight? Yeah, seven and seven or eight plus two and a half of driving or so. So we were gone yeah. for almost ten days. I think that's what it was. Yeah, it was, a, it was a blast. Yeah, don't get me wrong. We, yeah, we had a we it's had fun. an awesome trip, but it was uh, hard. Yeah, it's a hard way to kick the season off. <laughs> oh yeah, yep. I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was really cool about having both. Um, you and, and your dad Rex on Sean is that like Jared and I obviously have really good hunting relationships with our dads and um, you know uh, it's it's clear to say like we do share some of the same mindset but we also don't share all of the same mindset and so I was curious in terms of how like you and your dad I see your dad laughing right now so I know where this is gonna end up going but like how, like do you like obviously from from the outside looking in, if we're watching, you know, you and your dad or watching Heartland Bow Hunter, like we're like, oh, okay, like it seems like, you know, Rex and Sean like share the same mindsets. But Rex, you you're laughing, so I assume that maybe isn't the case all the time. Well, it, it would probably be no different than anyone you shared property with or did anything with. You spent that much close time with. Eventually, you're gonna find something you disagree about, so to speak. But yeah, there's a, there's an age difference. There's a different, you know, even I look back when we started the show and, uh, you know, when I first saw, well, first season one wasn't really the show, but season two, when they got Trevor on board to produce it, who had no experience in the hunting industry, who had no, he didn't even know what a hunting show was, you know, and he changed the whole look and focus. I was like, this doesn't look right. This isn't going to go anywhere. It's not appealing to me at all. And, you know, it gained traction immediately because I believe that's what younger people wanted to see. They were tired of being sold product, you know, hard sold on TV shows. And, uh, you know, it's the same old, same old guys are on, you know, and they're talking about hunting and the products they're using and everything else. So, you know, 
that's where I came from. So it was a change. There's no question about it. But through the years, as it's evolved, we've, uh, we're on the same page. There's no question about it. Do we still have differences of opinions on what we do, how we manage? Yes, for sure. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I don't think that'll ever change, you know, but overall we, we, you know, we make it work. And, uh, and I, you know, I would expect that anywhere where you have an age difference to where, cause I was raised completely different the way we hunted. Mm-hmm. So to where we're at today and where we're going, you know, I enjoy, I can't, I enjoy it a lot. I, I think a filming aspect is what renewed my interest in hunting more than anything else. I mean, because it's, 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 it's nice to spend all that time alone out there hunting and you see a lot of neat things, but after a while, you know, <laughs> it can wear you down a little bit too. So videoing it and sharing that kind of a team deal, it, it reinvigorated me mm-hmm. a lot. So, but I won't, you know, it's a lot of work. I think that's what everybody really doesn't understand about when you're filming and doing everything. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work to carry all that stuff out there, you know, time in time out. And even for the hunter, it's increased pressure. I mean, because, you know, you feel like you got to produce behind the camera and you got two guys out there, two different, could be two different mindsets. And you got to make it work. So. So yeah. Rex, have you been involved like fr- from day one or, you know, Sean, did you and Mike kind of kick this thing off and a couple of years into it, you guys started going on hunts together or, or how did that work? I'll let Sean explain it. Let's see how he explains it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were all, Mike and I hunted together. Um, I mean, I grew up hunting obviously with my dad. He's sure. the one that taught me, um, how to hunt and, and, um, got me into it and all that. But, um, Mike and I started hunting together and we're filming each other. Um, so that's kind of like what, what sparked the whole, um, video aspect of it. And then, um, I guess as we start, kept going, that would be, eh, I'd say like pretty much right after that, after Mike and I started, then we started hunting with, with my dad, with a camera as well. And I'd say we all, all three of us were pretty much kind of going together at that point. Um, especially since my dad was the for the most part, the property owner of some of the stuff that we were hunting. And so we incorporated him with the videoing, um, because he was so into bow hunting as well. And then, um, from there, it's just kind of, kind of kept the same stride and, um, you know, his interest in in hunting and and all that and bow hunting and the level of, um, experiences is up there with us as well. And so, yeah, we've just all kind of, kind of stayed hunting together and, and filming one another since the beginning pretty much i i have to wonder like um because you know rex when you're talking about kind of the way that you grew up and you know that's how like and i'm sure sean you're the same way like i remember you know i don't know probably in my teens or something like that you know watching like tnn on like a sunday night and it's like you know the standards right real tree buck masters like that that's yeah, that was prior or or early in the OSG days that, you know, Outdoor and Sportsman's Channel even existed. And, you know, to that point, like, uh, I remember, like, some of those things, like, you got excited for those things. But then you started to see this this shift in terms of, you know, when Outdoor uh, Channel and Sportsman's Channel kind of came along. Um, you know, I guess, Sean, on your side, when you and Mike started to think about that, uh, 
you know, I filmed just because I don't know why I did it. I, I, I wanted to kind of like be able to relive some of those hunts, I guess, that I was doing to, to your dad's point, like by myself. Um, but I guess at what point did it kind of click that you were like, well, we should do something different. Yeah. So, um, that's the exact same reason that we started filming. In fact, I think it was Mike that was the one that was really bringing a camera along. He, he strapped a handy cam to a stabilizer. I remember <laughs> when we were, yeah, when we were in high yeah. school and, uh, he would get some videos of him shooting, um, some does with that. And I think that's what really kind of sparked it, the video aspect. And then we started hunting together, saw him here and there, like turkey hunting and we'd film each other. And then, um, it just got, you know, gradually got a little more serious, but there was never in the beginning, for sure. There was never any like motive to be like, Oh, we're going to turn this into a show or whatever. Right. Um, but like, like my dad said, I think what, what Trevor, um, kind of incorporated into what we were already doing is what really sparked the interest to have like something like legitimate and, and knew that we had, um, really like a niche in the market and, um, just, something that was outside the box compared to what was already there. So mm -hmm. that's what, that's what really pushed along. I feel like. And I think that's one that, um, you know, at least for, for us, first of all, kudos to you guys to kind of uh, embrace that change. Right. Because, you know, even still today, I mean, there's a lot of the traditional shows and I think that, you know, not, not in a, in a bad way towards them, but they're starting to suffer, right? Like the, the public as well as even the sponsors and in the industry are starting to realize like, eh, you know, that doesn't that doesn't sell as well as we we think it was or or you know it's not worth what we were paying you you hear all of these things in the industry a lot but i think what's interesting about the way that you guys looked at it is you know and, and maybe that's where the trevor piece came in is it really started to involve more like a story or a journey right versus turnkey hunts because i mean obviously you know, you guys are, are thinking about it, um, just like most hunters are, where there, there's more to the the show, the show or the story than what you see. Uh, you guys decided, well, let's embrace that as much, if not more, than the hunt itself is the way I would look at it. Yeah, so early in it, you know, when I had those thoughts of this isn't appealing, so to speak, and as we gained more and more traction, I remember Sean or Mike or both of them, forwarding on emails from feedback and, and we had a lot of people and I'm not just talking one or two would send in comments that they ran across the show they don't even hunt but they enjoyed the cinematography of it so much that they just they just started watching it mm -hmm. and then you know people wanting to learn how to get into hunting so I, I think a lot of that I, you know I look at it and go I tell people I think we put as much emphasis on the video side of it as we do the hunting side. I mean, Sean will tell you that. I think he enjoys that as much as hunting. He really does. I mean, being behind the camera as much. And uh, so I think that is what where a lot of people and what's really changed it. The old hunting shows, I, you know, they're still fun to watch and everything else. But I think, you know, I look at it and go today's generation. I won't, you know, I say they're different, you know, mm -hmm. is it because there's more kids college educated and so on and so speak. And I can see right through, you know, the old platform, so to speak. But I just, I, I think the, everybody wanted to see the story side of it. And also that hunting's not just a, you know, two week or three month part of the year. It's a year round activity. 
And uh, this is what we do. And this is what, and a lot of people do it. People mm-hmm. are getting more into not just the going out for two weeks rifle hunting. Uh, they want to get into that shed hunting, you know, land management's become so big now and uh, what you can do with it. And it's, I enjoy it as much as I do hunting, you know? So I think that's where our show kind of everybody started seeing that and they, they gained an interest in it. So, yeah. dude, I think for me, how, how long have you guys been doing it now? <clears throat> you remember when se- season one, season two? Well, this is like our 15th season wow. that we're starting. Okay. That or makes sense. Not starting, but finishing. <laughs> that makes sense because I, I, I had to have been like, I don't know, 15, 15 to 16 range. Like when I kind of like just discovered it. And, uh, I remember it was like, there was, I'd never seen anything like it, you know, cause I, I grew up watching the outdoor channel and like all the shows that you said, bone collector. And mm-hmm. I think it was that Matthews like solo cam show that everybody was like the, the solo cam pro that that's yeah. who was fi- oh, yeah. self film. That's, you know, that's where that whole thing came from. But, but dude, the Heartland bow hunter thing f- for me was like, because at the time and, and even, you know, to this day, like I just, you know, I like to I fantasize about like being in the whitetail woods or like, you know, um, whichever aspect of, uh, you know, of, of hunting that we're talking about, I felt like your guys' production kind of gave me the opportunity. It was like, it gave a visualization to like what was happening in my head. Like I used to like, um, even once I got into college, like I would listen to like the, uh, like chill step type radio stuff. Like, you know, that like that, that music selection that like allowed me in my headspace to kind of go there. Like I thought your guys' production was the first and probably to this day, one of the only shows that like, in you know encapsulated that that fantasy aspect that like just just gave me the freedom to kind of escape in my own mind to like what what hunting is and it's mm-hmm. in its you know purest form in kind of same way but different the reason i got turned on to what you guys were doing is i had just moved from mississippi to columbia missouri and so yeah. I, you know i'm I, i'm a born and bred pennsylvania hunter right, who now is located in the Midwest, which, you know, seemed like the Mecca, but also, like, was pretty unfamiliar to the way that, you know, what I was expecting. And so, like, I got turned on to these guys, but it was like, oh, these, this is where these guys hunt. This is, this is their wheelhouse. So I almost looked at it as a way to kind of condition myself to the changes that I was going to be. Because, like, I, now I'm living in a state where, and again, I never did it, but, and Sean, I think we talked about it, like, I could kill three bucks in a year. You know, and it was like, is this possible? Like, it, you know, could I could I actually do this? And, you know, you're in there's certain parts of of Missouri that is like premier, you know, farm country and, and fragmented woods. There's other parts that's, you know, big timber. And and, you know, then you can even go towards the river and, you know, it's it's kind of a mix and you got swamps and sloughs and stuff. So, you know, I'm looking at it as like a complete different way of like, what's the what's the fastest way for me to condition myself? to hunting a state like Missouri. And so as I started like searching for content, like I find these guys and I'm like, Oh, like uh, this, this, like is, this is their backyard. This is how I'm going to adapt to it. Um, but I think to your point too, Jared, it, it was, it was different in that, you know, they, they weren't, you guys weren't out there just saying, Oh, cool. We're at so-and-so outfitter. We went out and we hunted and we did this. Like I start to see, you know, the, the impact in the, the year round activities that you're looking at from shed hunting to food plotting, you know, on the farms and stuff. And that was, you know, like, yeah, Bill and Midwest Waytail and these guys are doing it, but it still was different in that 
you guys took that look, feel, cinematography, story aspect and still were able to make a show. Because most people would tell you, well, yeah, but that's hard for a television show because people just want to see you kill deer. And I think you guys defied that. You, you said, no, they, they want to. They want to see a good hunt. But ultimately, they want to feel part of it more than, oh, like, I can't relate to that. Like, or he just showed up and, you know, shot this deer and kind of went home type of thing. Yeah, um, you hit it on the head. You did. So it was just weird. It, it was weird in a good way because it was so yeah. um, so unique at that time in the industry, which is was a lot of, you know, show up, kill it, close it. Like I didn't feel pulled through the season on most shows. On your show, I almost felt like, well, what what's next week's episode? Like what what's next? You know, it pulled me through that that journey a little bit different. Yeah, I think um, that's I mean, that's really the only reason that we, we've been successful in what we do is just because like there was a, such a strong connection with people in the outdoors on our show and um, even people that weren't necessarily hunters. Like I remember um, and we still get them today, but like in the beginning, like we would often get emails from people saying, uh, you know, like your show is the only show I can sit down and my wife will actually sit in the same room and, and watch mm -hmm. the show. With me. And he's like, usually she leaves and goes and does something else because she can't stand hunting shows but um like the music aspect and everything in <clears throat> the um connection with the outdoors is, is why she sits there and watches it and now she wants to go hunting or whatever you know so yeah i think the the music the shots all of it um are far more than just going out and shooting a deer which is really the only the, i feel like the biggest testament to our success especially from the beginning. So Rex, I have to ask just cause I kind of envision my own dad, what, what his answer would be. But, um, what was, what were Sean and Mike like in the high school days of, of hunting and, and you know, how much, how well, much, how much gray hair did he give you back then? I guess. Well, you well, know, that, that, uh, <laughs> that little Sony handy cam he talked about Mike had, well, I had one too, and Sean used it. And guess who has all those tapes? I do. <laughs> Just... I have that vault of tapes at my house, and uh, I need to get them out and make them digital, actually, because mm -hmm. uh, I think there's going to be some good stuff somewhere down the road. I don't know when their kids grow up or whatever, but it'd be fun to produce an episode of those two of that stuff. But no, they were, they were there your normal kids uh well one thing you guys don't know my dad was a uh, federal game warden oh wow so he was in conservation all his life started in iowa and then became a federal agent so i grew up being the game warden's son and everybody thinks oh wow i bet that was cool well i i think i hunted with <laughs> my dad one time ever in in his entire career and I fished with him probably more than I ever hunted because my dad was always gone. Right. He was always working on the weekends and, uh, you know, a federal agent, Hey, he used to leave for the summer and go ban ducks and geese up in Canada. So he wasn't around a lot and he didn't really, and, and I'm not complaining. He didn't teach me hunting. I pretty much taught myself and through our friends. So growing up that way, uh, I'll tell you a funny story if you want to hear it about being a game warden son when I was younger here in a minute. But growing up that way, I was always big on, you know, obeying the law, so on and so speak. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mike and Sean, for the most part, live by the rules. You know, we all have had infractions in our life, so to speak. So, but they were a go, go, go group. I mean, Sean's twin, I like to say, 
you know, and it's kind of interesting growing. Everybody asks, well, what's the secret to get your kids to grow up to hunt? And I go, well, the biggest thing is show them a great experience the first few times they go out and they'll want to go again. So, but back when Sean grew up, they hunted, him and his brother hunted. I mean, when they were in uh, probably junior high, they hunted every night. They bow hunted. They had a friend that came over and bow hunted. And then, then in senior high, Sean met Mike. And Sean, uh-huh. Shane, Shane kind of slowed down on the hunting. He's not, he likes to hunt, but he's more about going whenever he wants to go and not, he doesn't have the same passion as Sean does. And so when Sean met Mike, I think he found someone else at his age group that liked to hunt as much as he did in the way he liked to hunt. And that's pretty much how it took off. They went to college together and same thing. So that's kind of how it transpired. And, and, uh, they both stuck with it and made a very lucrative business out of it. So that sound accurate, John. I was just going to say that, uh, I, I met Mike in junior high. We started hunting together before senior, senior year. It was probably like junior year when we really actually started hunting together quite a bit, but. Well, you met then, but you couldn't drive, so it's kind of <laughs> hard to get together. True. Very so. true. It, I, I think it's interesting because, <clears throat> like, I um I grew up with family hunting, like, mainly my cousins and uncles and my grandpa, um, but most of them were, I guess, like, purely gun hunters, right? So we had, like, the family tradition of deer camp before opening day and that kind of thing. Um, and, and it really, it was probably like one of my cousins and like my dad and I were almost like the outcast. Cause you know, by the time we hit opening day at gun season, yeah, we had been bow hunting for, you know, a month and a half, two months, um, at that point. And so, you know, it was, it, you kind of knew some of the areas just, you know, like the back of your hand. And so you would get to a place like deer camp and people would say, oh, you know, where should I go here? And it's like, no, don't go there. Like I've already been there. Like I know what the sign looks like. Here's where you should get. And you're almost like playing guide to some of these things so when you can find somebody you know and that's why i think jared and i you know hunt so well together is like you find somebody that's like-minded to be like okay like you know you're thinking what i'm thinking and then it's an easy adaptation to be effective that way you know it's 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 important you know in success and also just to enjoy hunting period it's hard to find people too that are you know, so, so like-minded, whereas it seems like you and Mike are, and I think Jer- Jeremy and I, whether we started that way or we just kind of grew in the same direction with it, um, I think that's one of the coolest aspects of, of hunting and, and one that um, I guess is kind of discussed, but it's like, it's a strange dynamic and that's like, you know, a, lo- a lot of people are like, man, what I love about hunting is I get to that deer camp atmosphere and like, you know, have all these, these friends that are in, in the community and stuff and, and you know, I'm not, I think those are great things. Like, I, I think that's a, a big piece of it. But like, for me, like bow hunting is an individual sport. Like it's, it's me versus like th- this deer that I'm chasing. Um, but the fact that like Jeremy and I get to both retreat and have that camaraderie, um, you know, with like, with just he and I is like, you almost need that aspect of it to like, uh, t- to have fun with it still. Cause like w- what good would all of that stuff be if at the end of it, I was just like, just me sitting here with a skull cap and I'm like, look, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, this is what I did. But the fact that Jeremy and I have that camaraderie and that you and Mike and that you and your dad have that is, um, is really cool. For sure. Absolutely. I agree. So I want to backtrack. Why don't you go ahead and tell that story dad about, um, grandpa and, mm-hmm. and being, so a- I think I was probably, 
2010, maybe. And I lived, uh, well, I was born in Iowa and then lived in New Mexico and spent most of my life in Houston growing up, Texas. And uh, so, like I said, my dad couldn't take me fishing because he was always working. So this particular time, some of the neighbors guys, they would go and I'd always go hang out around their house, hoping they were going to ask me to go fishing. Well, they, these, these gentlemen asked me to go. And of course, they're my father's age. And so we go down on this, uh, on the San Jacinto river, which is down by Houston. We went catfishing. So I was with these two adults and we're, we're catfishing down there. And I think we caught a couple catfish and they were like 10 inches long. And, and they, uh, they asked me, they go, well, what's the length limit? You know, the length limit, you know, they're asking me a 10 year old boy. I think, well, I, I think it's, I think they're fine. 10 inches. I think we're fine. <laughs> we're good. So we kept them. And so we're getting ready to go in and here we start heading up the river. And here comes a couple Texas game wardens in a boat. They stop us immediately. I knew one of them and my head just went down and, uh, you know, I'm sitting there and of course the, the two guys I was with, they, uh, they got tickets. Of course, I was too young for the catfish. So the two guys I was with, they go, now, don't you go home and tell your dad about this. He'll be mad, you know, so on and so forth. So I'm like, of course, I didn't want to tell my dad anyway. You know, I was like, but my dad was pretty hardcore, been in law enforcement all his life, you know. So I go home and Sunday afternoon, and I'll never forget my dad came home and he said, I'm out here in the backyard. I want to talk to you. And I'm like, Oh boy, what's, what's going on here? So I was out there and he's like, did you go fishing today? Did you guys get pulled over today? And I just started bawling. I'm like, yeah. And, and he handled it really good. Cause he knew I'd already punished myself bad enough. He goes, well, he said, son, here's the worst thing about it. He said, those two guys, he said, you know, I know you knew them. He said, the bad thing was I was supposed to be working with them today, but I ended up having to go work on another case somewhere. And he says, can you imagine what it would have been like for me if I would have been with them? And we pulled you over. Of course, I got it then. Yeah. <laughs> Message so, loud and clear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you say that, Rex, because, you know, um, and, and Sean, you're probably in the same boat. Like, I hunted a lot with my dad you know, when I was in junior high and senior high and then kind of as college happens and, and things happen, you know, you kind of drift apart and now getting older, we're, we're coming back together. But, you know, it's, it's, in, you have an interesting dynamic, I think, as a father son hunting duo, like there were plenty of things like growing up, like I always would, you know, my dad would be like, Hey, you want to hunt tomorrow morning or you want to go hunting this evening? Yeah, for sure. But like, as we're getting there, like, I knew that I had like different thoughts on kind of what I wanted to do. And at some point, instead of just going along with it, I'm, I'm sure I spoke up and I was like, well, yeah, no, I'm not going there. I'm going to hunt over here or, or whatever. And he would be like, oh, okay, well, well, like, why are you going to do it? And it's like, well, you know, I scouted here and, you know, this is where the sign is. And you start to build up. I won't say it's tension, but but you definitely start to get to that point where you you go back and forth as a father son. And it's not an argument, but it's like, listen, like I'm getting to the age, like I, I can, you know, I know where I need to go. I know where my best. And a lot of times, especially when I was young and probably ignorant, like he would kill a buck or he would see a buck and I would see, you know, shit <laughs> essentially. And it wasn't ever like, uh, well, I told you so. And it is now like at this point in, in life, it's like, 
well, no, you know, I'll go over here, you go over there, and he'll be like, well, you know, I told you, this this is where you probably should have been at this point. And I think I say I say that because it's... Um, I'd say it's gone past that to the point where he's asking you where you should go now. Yeah. It's full circle. Full he's circle like, back. He's like, hey, it's a lot of work to it's a lot of work to try to figure out where I should go. He's yeah. like, I'm just going to ask Jeremy. I know yeah. Jeremy's putting that work in. Bring the young guys, hang the stand, and you know, just tell me where you want me to be. But I, I, I think it's interesting because... Um, you know, he was definitely the guy who taught me to read sign and really pay attention to things in the woods. And obviously, you know, now here we are, whatever, 20, 25 years later, um, the technology and cell cams and everything, which he loves, he enjoys it all, has has got us to a point where, you know, I see him looking at my kids and saying, well, like, are you going to teach him to like, you know, read read rub lines and, and scrapes and stuff? And And I do, but there's also a hell of a lot of things that are different than when I was a kid, you know? Um, and so I don't know if it's necessarily the fact that like, he's like, well, you know, don't, don't let them lose that, you know, still sense of primitive scouting. Um, but also enjoy the technologies of cell cams and everything else. But it, it is a weird thing. Cause you're right. It, it's come back to like, well, you know, you kind of tell me where to go at this point. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take this one a little bit here. Uh, and we, we go through that quite a bit and I don't know what it is. Well, I do, I do in some ways. I mean, Sean, his passion is to hunt is definitely stronger than mine. Now I enjoy it. I probably enjoy it more now than when I was younger and I was going every day mm-hmm. because he, I mean, he, it's hard to explain. I handle part of the work. He handles the deer part of it. I mean, like when we're up here hunting and he'll tell you this too, he, he gets annoyed because the deer will come out and I'll go, what deer is that? What do you mean? You don't know what deer this is? Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, but he runs all the cameras. He's got the whole library on his computer. He's the one that organizes them and checks the cameras. And you know, I'm behind his shoulder while he's scrolling through all the pictures. Oh, here's big John. Here's so-and-so. And so when I get out there, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to spend that time to do it. He spends hours on it. I do other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, you know, we've got a real nice place built up here. I enjoy that kind of it. I'm a real hands-on guy. He's, that's not his passion. You know, Uh, I've always been a, I grew up very mechanically. So I like to work on stuff doing it. Then the other big aspect of it too, is I like to fish as much as I like to hunt. That's hilarious. So, you know, I, you know, I've got my plate full, so he's into more quality than I am on the hunting end of it, and he handles that. So I, but I enjoy that. I really do because when I, when we go out, so on and so forth. We, I mean, it's he's got it planned out. He knows what to do, and I do the same thing. I ask him. Matter of fact, I'm up here right now. I'm try to get a guy a doe, and I'm like, well, you think we ought to hunt here, where, there, and whatever. So I'll, I'll take his opinion on it. I will. That's it fine. doesn't mean I'll always do it. <laughs> sometimes sometimes i go against the grain on purpose because we know at the end of the day it's like fishing it's not always catching yeah sometimes it's just fishing and you can do some weird stuff and still be successful <laughs> that's hilarious so, i let's let's hear sean's side of what he thinks <laughs> hey pretty much you put it in a i mean you yeah. put it pretty straightforward yeah like i don't I mean, it, it doesn't quite click and I don't have the patience that you do with, um, mechanical stuff. Um, 
it just never has really. Uh, and I guess it's going to have to at some point in my life, but <laughs> yeah, no, I'm in the same boat, man. You're getting there. <laughs> I think about it all the time. I'm like, man, what if this breaks and like it, you know, it's all on me, it's mine. I own it, whatever. I got to fix it or have someone else fix it. But um, anyways, yeah, back to that. Like, yeah, I, I do enjoy um, keeping track of all of the deer and um, the age class and, and whatnot. And um doing all that stuff whereas he has his own his own corner that he stays in and does um as far as like the, i mean he handles a lot more of the food plot stuff than i do um you know i know what what we want planted where but um and it's still obviously a learning process every year we're still always learning mm-hmm. with that um he's definitely a little more um well versed in that that realm i feel like than i am but um yeah, he, he's right. Well, when we go hunting too, like if he questions stuff, I'll get a little snappy with him and <laughs> tell him, no, that's not how it's supposed to go. But it's not how this works, dad. <laughs> I, I, yeah. At, at the end of the day though, too, I'm, I'm definitely not always right. There's plenty of times yeah. I'm wrong. Well, we know the feeling too, like from, and from personal experience, that's a nice contrast to have. Um, you know, your dad is the landowner, it sounds like, or, or has been in the past, um, as is mine, you know, the farm I spend most, most of the time on, you know, my dad owns it and, uh, the, the rangers and mules we run around on them, he, he owns them and he's responsible for them, you know? And, um, so we're certainly grateful to, to all of our dads for the upkeep of, um, you know, all that side of things. And we're certainly glad that you are passionate about, um, those side of things. Cause I think if we, if we had to spend as much time as you do keeping up with machines and uh doing the work behind the scenes we probably wouldn't uh get anything done otherwise but oh i enjoy it you know another thing too i think i'm just sitting here thinking okay what you know sean gets frustrated but he gets frustration out of passion yep you know like when we're out there and maybe a deer won't come in or i've made a bad shot there's no question about that's happened his frustration level is much higher than mine, mm-hmm. but I've lived, I've lived through all that. I'm not out there because I need to kill the biggest deer or I need to even kill anything. I'm out there, you know, to experience the hunt and, uh, he wants success. He really does because he's passionate about it and his expectations are much higher than mine. Not that mine haven't been there in earlier lives. So I, I, yeah. and I think that happens with everybody. I think it's that way. You know, you guys will see it as you grow up with your kids, the same thing. Your patience level uh, will <laughs> will spike with young kids. Yeah, and then I, as I they get older and you have had those great experiences, you're going to get so, you'll, you just kind of mellow out. It's kind of like, hey, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. So It's funny to hear you talk about, um, you know, fishing being a passion of yours as well. I think like where I get frustrated, um, or, or if my dad and I butt heads over anything, it's, I'm very much like Sean and that I, you know, I take it really seriously, admittedly too, too seriously, probably. Um, you know, and I, and I know every deer it's easy for me. I'm look at him like, Oh, so-and-so, so-and-so, Oh, he's this, yeah. he's this. It's like se- second nature to me. It's, and it's because I spend hours and I've got these things every morning I, I wake up, I roll over and I flip through my trail cam and I know who's, <laughs> who's what and what's where. And, and, uh, nobody else has that like luxury or immediate access to information. And so, you know, some, if some, if, you know, my dad is always the one that's like, Oh, you know, is this so-and-so or is that so-and-so? And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> how do you not know this? But, but, but what I like to say is, um, and I love my dad. We have a, we have a really good hunting relationship at this point, And, uh, we've learned to like respect each other's boundaries and stuff. He, uh, 
I think you know he is um, he's more of a fisherman than he is a hunter, and that that's not a uh, that's not a dig at all. Um, no, I get it. What it is is this mindset of he thinks that deer are like, and, and I think he's coming full circle on this, so he's getting better. But we're coming from a place where my dad thinks that deer are like, you know, bass in a lake. You know, if if that one doesn't work out, he's just gonna he's gonna keep ripping them out. You know, and there's there there's always another one. There's always another one. And what I'm trying to like get you know get into his head is like, no, dude, there's one. Like, you know, in certain cases, sometimes there's a handful of them. But like, listen, these are. These are special it's creatures. A finite There's a resource. very limited number of them, and if you kill one, that's you know that's that has a big impact, or or whatever it is. If you're hunting something a certain way, or you're doing this thing that I disagree with, or whatever, like it has a, a major impact. And the way that he has treated it in the past is like like they're you know fish fish in a lake, and so <laughs> that's where our disagreements were in the beginning. And I think o- over time we've come closer together, and that he, he's realized you know okay I've hunted hard you know nobody will hunt i won't take that away from my dad he he nobody mm-hmm. hunts harder than he does you know he'll sit there day in and day out for the entire season uh and not seeing anything worth shooting at to to where i think he's starting to realize like okay you know maybe i should ask jared's opinion or or maybe i should uh you know do something a little differently and at the same time I, i've tried to value not value the white tail less but but just be more um just more accepting of the fact that he's going to hunt the way that he wants to hunt, you know, and, uh, you know, we're not the same people. So I should stop expecting him to think about it exactly the same way that that I do. And, um, I I think ultimately that that's yielded he and I hunting better together at this point. Yeah. I, I, you know, the hunting and fishing thing, it, golly, I like to fish. I love to deer hunt. I used, I like to waterfowl hunt too, but I don't do much waterfowl hunting, just time. Yeah, but yeah. I, it, it's bittersweet on these animals i can tell you that's probably why i enjoy fishing so much more mm-hmm. because you can let them go uh and see another day and with these deer you know sean and i every time we we kill a big deer together we're both like god this this just sucks you know you've had so much history with this animal and this is over this chapter yeah. is over yeah it's like super bittersweet it is it really is. we, we yeah. talked about it last time when i just killed my deer here a few weeks ago a month ago and it's like golly we had what three three encounters with him this year and it was just so much fun it was over that fast mm-hmm. and i just went yeah. just went boom it was over and we're, we're sitting there going there's got to be more you know we're out there and we'll yeah. spent well, the whole night just yeah. there talking about it I mean, I think, I think that's what we do it for though. It's like, we, and we, we know that going in is like, I, I've heard oh, enough yeah. guys that have been hunting a lot longer than I have talk about that bittersweet feeling and how it's like, man, the farm's empty after, after we did that. But at the same time, you know, I can't remember the last time, like my dad and I caught a fish together and it was like the best, the, one of the highest moments of our life, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I can't it's, get Sean to go fishing with me. All right. <laughs> so we're, t- we're too busy know, seeking that. To. Yeah. He, he wants to go when it's catching, not fishing. Well, yeah, me too. Yeah, I hear it. <laughs> well, and well, it seems like seldom times that I do go, it is fishing. Yeah, and, and that's just how the luck plays out. I'm just just casting the whole. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, my dad had primarily hunted his entire life in the state of Pennsylvania, right? And so, like, you know, growing up, it was you know, kill the first spike you see. And then like, I can vividly remember like the first hunt I ever sat with him on. I would think I was like nine during opening day gun season. And he kills like 
I don't know, probably was it, what was a two, maybe a three, but probably a two-year-old A-point. And, like, at that time, like, you paraded that thing around. This is the one you, you could see the seg, the e-seg burning across the field. Oh, no, no, that's, that's... That was a real cigarette at the time, <laughs> and then he set it down. I watched him. So, my dad, it, it's just so funny. I, like, the guy taught me everything I knew about hunting. Um, and, like, we were... when well, we hunted in... Uh, I was in high school. We hunted this um, small... I think it was probably 60 or 70 acre place. Lots of soybean, cornfield type stuff. And just these little blocks of woods. And so, like, I had a tree stand on one side of the field. His was on the other. Like, at that point, like, I didn't even think about hunting wind or any. Like, I just hunted, you know, every day. You know, I would come from, like, the high school football game on, like, Friday night. And, you know, he'd think I walked out of, like, a whorehouse or something. I smelled, like, you know, cologne and perfume <laughs> or whatever. And he's like, I, you know, I don't understand. So, anyways, I'm sitting across. And it's, like, vivid, like, remembering like the glow of a cigarette across the field. And I'm thinking like, you know, I sm smell probably, but I'm like, there's no way like this guy is ever going to kill a deer, like looking like that. And I remember like he put the cigarette down on the V of a tree and he shot an old um, bear whitetail bow that was in camo duct tape, wooden compound with fingers. <laughs> and he smoked like three great bucks out of that tree stand as I watched from a distance. And it's just like, yeah. those are the things that I'm just like, like mind blowing. Right. And, and it was cool experiences. Cause like, I'll never forget it. He'll tell the same story of me killing my first year and hearing like four arrows, like ding, 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 like through the soybean as I miss it. Right. With like the fourth one actually making the mark and like the dough, like just laying down in the field. But it's like those kind of experiences. And obviously we've come a long way from like that point, but like the way I hunt now, and obviously we all grow as hunters is like, I'm very particular about finding a deer. And like, that's the season for me. That deer is the deer that I'm going to focus on. I don't like, would I kill another one that's probably walking around? Yeah. But like, I'm not hunting them. I'm hunting this deer. And he has definitely grown a lot to where now he, he wants to kill a big mature buck, but he's not particular about what, like just put me in an area where there's a good chance I'm going to do it. And you know, and I say that because we've taken him now outside of Pennsylvania to, to Kansas with us several times. And like the first, you know, experience for Kansas with him, he's like, man, I saw like eight bucks chasing a single doe. Like I've never seen anything like this in my life. And, you know, but it's also the fact that you see a, a big buck and he's like, man, that's a giant. And it's like, yeah, that's like a big three-year-old out here, you know? And it's, <laughs> you, you just aren't used to that. So here he is in like his sixties now, adapting to like what I've experienced the last 10 years of hunting in like the Midwest and stuff. And it's, it's kind of weird because he's like a new hunter again in that sense. And I'm also like, well, yeah, like I, like I wouldn't even pay attention to that deer in Kansas. Like these are the deer we're after. Um, but he also is at the point in his life where I know he just, he just likes to be out with me. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter what he kills or if he kills like, you know, if I, we killed this last year, I killed the first day we were in Kansas and the rest of the time, you know, I filmed them. I sat in the tree above them. It was warm and it sucked. And to, to your point about Sean's frustration, that's where I'm at. Like he's enjoying that hunt so much. And I am oh, just yeah. frustrated to a T because I've, I've put all this work in and I'm like, dad, I just want you to get a buck, man. Like it would be so great. And he's like, I don't, you know, I don't care. And I'm like, well, I do. It's 70 degrees. This sucks. Nothing's happening, you know? And it's out of frustration because I want the success for him. Um, meanwhile, he's already seeing it as, no, like, you don't understand. This is the success. We're together 
hunting for six days in Kansas, like we don't get to do this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think Sean's frustration level only gets higher one time with me. It's when he lets me film him. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> why, why, why is that? Well, you can answer that. Go ahead. Oh, well, because his experience behind the camera is just by far none. I mean, I, I know how to run the camera. I can do it, but I don't do it enough to be oh, I see. As proficient as most of those guys are. You guys are. And, and I'm older. There's no question about it. I mean, I, you know, the only, I probably wouldn't even be able to run a camera if I hadn't. <laughs> Back in the day, I had a 35 millimeter camera and I used to develop film and everything. So I understand how a camera functions. So video cameras, <laughs> but still, there's so much on those today. There's so much you can do. It's just unbelievable. So when I go out and film him or whatever, I have to get a refresher course out there. And, you know, he's like, oh, my God, you you don't remember this again? So, yeah, but I take it all with a grain of salt when you're filming me because I know what I'm getting myself you into. I'm like, you know, you know, like, yeah, did you get the get shot? Anything? He's like, huh? What? Yeah, 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 no, for sure. Yes. Did you turn the second camera on? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious what your guys' dynamic has been. I, I think it's just because, um, yeah, and I'm probably the youngest one here on this podcast, but like, as like a young man, I guess, like I'm super passionate about like killing a big, but like right now at my, at this point in life, like that, that's kind of what I'm pursuing. And I've put it on a pedestal above a, a lot of other things. I've made sacrifices about like, I'm not going to spend time doing this or, um, you know, I'm okay not doing that. And I'm going to solely focus, whether it's fishing or turkey hunting, whatever it is, I'm going to put it all aside and solely, you know, pursue this one mature buck that I'm trying to kill. And I think where, um, like my dad and I have, have butted heads is that he loves to do lots of stuff. He loves to fish. He loves to, you know, bring people out to the farm and, and host, you know, just have friends over that, you know, oh, yeah. whatever it is, all these things, you know, he, he could just have fun doing X, Y, Z number of things, you know, and from my perspective, uh, you know, X and Z, directly interferes with my goal of accomplishing why like this is my thing that I'm trying to do and so it, while I know he wants to kill a big buck you know he doesn't necessarily value it as much as I do or even as much as you know these other things that he enjoys doing on the farm and so um, mm -hmm. I, I've had to kind of just be, be okay with that I think and, and he's he's given some on that as well it's compromise, compromise. Yeah. that's what it is exactly and you guys are we do the same thing I mean, go ahead, Sean, tell them. Let's hear this side of this story. Yeah, I put it on a pedestal, too. Uh, I try to take it off the pedestal as well, um, and it's tough. <laughs> to do. Yeah. You're, get, you're getting better, though. Well, because it's like yeah. what's left, Sean. We, we've invested so much in killing giant bucks that it's like if you – it's like if I try to ignore that goal, it's like – well, it's I'm, a, I'm it's, empty. I'm empty. Inside. It's a super <laughs> fragile goal too, because like it, I, mine's a little different in that, like my dad isn't necessarily on the properties that I'm hunting versus, you know, how Rex and your dad It's are. emotionally taxing, man. It's extremely highs and lows of bow hunting. I know you've seen like your dad driving like the, the four wheeler, like right by camera and you're like, what is he doing? Oh, well, dude, that's the, that's the <laughs> definition of what I'm talking about. It's like November 3rd, I'm at home waiting for a cold front and I get a cell phone picture of my dad driving, you know three Amishmen through the, <laughs> just like, just, a to, just farm tours is what he calls them, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, my dad doesn't, he doesn't do that, but like, um, <laughs> he, he's, a, he, my dad, you're on the same, my dad's on the same level as me with that, that type of stuff. Like he wouldn't, he doesn't do that, but, um, 
Yeah, it, it's crazy. Like we, I don't know, like I want everything, like we were saying to be absolutely 100% perfect. Um, and it has to be done a certain way because that's, that's how we're, we're going to get the end result that we want. And so I, I, I do put it up on a pedestal like you as well, but, um, I've had to, I've had to learn the hard way too, like with things not going my way that, um, I got to tone it down, reel myself back in because I mean, at the end of the day, man, it, it is, it's just deer hunting and I get it. Like it's, it's our passion. It's our job. That's where we're, we're at with it. But it's like, just remember, like, that's not, that is not why we got into this in the first place. So like, just mm-hmm. tone it down and, and, and step back into reality and realize that like, that, that, that that's not everything. And that's, I mean, I'm at fault for that. Cause sometimes I, I put myself there where it, it is everything in my mind. And it's like, it's really not like chill out. Well, It'll you, happen. And you've got even like an additional layer of of pressure on that and that you've built a career around it. You know, people expect you to go out and be successful in the deer woods. And, you know, if, if things are happening, whether it's your dad or, or whoever else that like, um, puts that in jeopardy, you know, not only is your goal compromised, but like, you know, there's this layer of like expectation that, um, you know, that that's interfering with. Yeah. And then I think about it too. And I'm like, you know what, that's life. That's how it goes for everyone. So that's, that's all relatable. Everybody deals with the same stuff. Um, well, and you know what, Sean, at, at the end of the day, like I've had, I've been forced to kind of admit, uh, so like in the same breath where I'm like, Hey, it's November 3rd. I see my dad out there giving farm tours and then I'll hunt the next three weeks unsuccessfully. And my dad just tags out on a fluke, um, you know, yeah. on, on a big, but, and so th- the realization that I've had there, uh, is that there's a lot more luck in, in deer hunting than, uh, I think any of us like to admit. Oh, absolutely. Yep. No question sure. about it there's so much emphasis that we put on certain things and think like there's so many things that we think truly matter, but when it all comes down to it, mm-hmm. the cards just have to line up. Yeah. Well, I think one of the big things that, that probably all of us on this call really enjoy, and, and it's something that we've tried to get, um, you know, emphasize a little bit more on this podcast is I, I know I personally enjoy the off season as much as I do the actual hunting season. You know, whether that's food plots or shed hunting or just planning or running cameras, whatever it is, you know, we, we talked about it on our last podcast of like, you know, I almost love it so much that I think that there's probably a chance that I'm doing more harm than good in some cases. Right. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm a, I wouldn't say like over managing it, but I'm active in the off season a lot thinking I'm improving the property where, you know, am I putting too much pressure on certain areas? Am I bumping bucks off that, you know, just spending time there? Yeah, just spending time. But, and it's because, you know, the, the relationship I have with my dad is you know, we love the outdoors. That's that's one of the things that we can commonly say all the time that we agree that we just want to be out there doing it if we have the time to do it. And so, yeah, there, there's that fine line, I think, on the hunting expectation side to like, you know, if you spend enough time out there, even if you think you are improving it in some cases, you know, you could also be hurting it just because, you know, some of those big mature bucks don't like that. They don't like disturbance. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and things change every, every year too, to where, you know, like just naturally that might push them somewhere else, but like you being there and changing things, whether it's little or drastic, you know, it might just be that one thing that they don't like to where they, like you're saying, they may want to just, move a property over or whatever it is but yeah it's I, I I'm the same way like I mean I know my dad is too like we just want to be there and, and doing something and trying to improve like you said but um, it gets to a point too where it's like okay I, I'm actually I've thought about this a lot I'm like how much more is there to improve like what 
yeah. you know, like, are you going to go like out of your way to go do something else that may not necessarily need it? And then in the grand scheme, you actually might be doing harm mm-hmm. to the property. Um, I'm curious, and I don't know exactly what your guys's um, like land ownership or access situation is, but like um, I know that I've seen personally on the farm that that my folks own that that we hunt together and stuff. It seems like um, we we've had that place for um, probably six or seven years at this point, and we mm-hmm. started from day one, you know, implementing like management projects that we thought would be helpful, like um, you know, timber stand improvement, food plots. Um, you know, just all these different things that, uh, you know, we thought would improve the property. And at this point, like in hindsight, I would say slowly but surely that property has gotten worse and worse. Um, you know, as we, as our projects have developed, it just seems like our time on that property and just, just being there or or whatever it is, maybe it, maybe it's underlying circum, you know, pressure from the neighbors and stuff, things that we don't see. Um, you know, we talked, I think on the lot last podcast about like managing these properties to death and like it it kind of seems like uh easier to do than i i once thought almost to the point where i'm like man maybe go in there with a with a really specific goal in mind spend a week doing it and then you know stay stay away from it like have you guys seen that on your properties at all or i would say like surrounding pressure for sure um that's the biggest factor with missouri's gun season it's Mm-hmm. it kills us um you know there I, I feel like when my dad first got that property it was like 2013 i think um it was actually in really rough shape then because um uh, that was following ehd and so mm-hmm. like there were like two deer that might have been mature i'm not even sure because we didn't have any prior history but outside of that it was it was pretty slim um and then it actually got better for sure without a doubt and then I feel like the last couple of years, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's gotten worse, but, um, as far as like the, the age class goes with like three to four year olds, like they're just getting smoked with guns mm-hmm. and, or even there's a, there's a highway that's not far from there. You just hit by cars, which that's uncontrollable there. You can't do anything about that. But, um, yeah, I, I think. Can you, can you hunt with, um, crossbows during the archery season out there too? can yeah um i personally don't know anyone um, close to us that's killed any of the deer that we um that we've targeted i don't know anyone that's killed them with a crossbow but um yeah there's definitely crossbows around in missouri and um well we've seen quite a bit of that we, we talk a lot on this podcast to be you know i don't even think you and i are sure at this point like if hunter numbers are actually down or it, or if they're up or if it's somewhere in between where it's like all of these rifle guys are just hunting with crossbows uh and they're in the woods you know quite a bit more um yeah we're somewhere in between i mean i know what you're just because i lived out there and i think we touched on it the last one i mean the fact that missouri's rifle season starts whatever second saturday of november uh is mind-blowing you know some of my best days when i lived there were like the the thursday and friday before gun season started saturday you know, from a, from a hunting perspective. Um, and yeah, I mean, if, if the stars align and weather's good and, you know, things are cranking, I mean, yeah, a lot of those bucks and, and not even just the mature bucks, but a lot of your up and comers at that three and four year range just get torched, you know, cause they're just out running themselves to death and crossing so many property lines. Yeah. Yeah. And the crossbow thing, like I, I personally don't think that's helping. Um, 
with guys that are shooting out to 90 yards at the crossbow. Um, I think that that's actually gotten more, more gun hunters into that archery season. It absolutely um, has with the crossbow. And, um, that's not helping along with, uh, our gun season. Like you guys said, in the middle of, uh, middle of the rut Then on top of that, now we have, um, which we've had it, but we, we have muzzleloader season late in the game. Yeah. Um, I think that was like right around Christmas through the, yep. like the 4th of January, but a muzzleloader, I mean, is it's a rifle. Dang. Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> a rifle. So if you haven't filled that, that gun tag through the rut, I mean, it gives guys an opportunity to come back and do that. And it's, it's tough, man. It makes it really tough. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing is, um, you know, and, and Jared and I take heat, because we maybe single out crossbows too much there. And again, I have nothing against them. I think there's there's plenty of demographics that should be able to use them. But, you know, with the way that Missouri is structured, you know, essentially I can kill uh, I can kill one buck with an archery before gun season, right? Then I can go and kill a buck with my rifle during gun season. And then essentially I can go kill another buck after gun season with my crossbow again. So, like, if I'm out there crossbow hunting, I could essentially kill buck before gun season, kill buck during gun season, kill buck after gun season. And, you know, I haven't seen the stats in probably the last six or seven years since my wife worked for the state, but, you know, it was a small, small percentage that killed two bucks, and it was even obviously a smaller percentage that killed three. However, with the efficiency of these weapons increasing, um, at some point those numbers are going to creep up. And maybe it only creeps up a tenth of a percent or something, but that's still a lot of bucks falling you know, because of, of the ability for multiple, um, bucks to be shot during the different seasons and stuff. So, you know, not to mention EHD and, and, you know, in some of the Northern tier of Missouri, there's, there's CWD and, you know, that's had drastic reductions in deer herds, not necessarily from CWD, but from state implementations. So I mean, at, at the risk of sounding pessimistic about this whole deal it just seems like the the whitetail world is getting smaller and smaller like with you know crossbow seasons overlapping archery seasons with uh cellular trail cameras with with baiting allowed in a lot of these different states um it, it just seems like man how you know they're so far and few between you know to, to be able to get access to a property that has like m m mature deer on it is is mm -hmm. quite a feat in and of itself and uh, I don't know if it's getting harder than it, than it has been in the past or if it's just my my perception of it. I mean, my, my thinking but, uh, where I get worried, I guess, um, let's just say hunter numbers are stable and have been stable in the last 10 years, which I don't think is the case. I think they've actually been trending upwards. But my, my fear is, first of all, we all know, that, and not to pick on any of the state, all the state agencies are slow to respond, right? Uh, like, I just, we had Pennsylvania Game Commission on, we talked about Sunday hunting, and basically I was like, well, you know, what were the results last year with Sunday hunting? Well, we're going to wait for three years and then give you the numbers. N no. So what happens is, is if, if this, let's say, crossbow and the effective, I mean, there's companies putting out 500 feet per second crossbows now. If this effectiveness it increases couple tenths of a percent it's a dramatic impact on our harvest numbers during the year if we don't address that immediately and we wait and say well let's just see what the three-year average is which is typically what a state will do it could be a massive impact on our herd before we even you know make an adjustment um and i think that's where i get worried about like it seems like our numbers are up there's definitely more archery hunters whether it's crossbow or compound 
if all of a sudden we become more efficient killing machines because of weapons in hand, season uh, bag limits, the the liberal uh, positioning of the season date in the case of like a Missouri rifle season or a Kentucky rifle season, if we don't make an adjustment for three to five years because we want to just see what the average is, we could make a huge impact on this herd. And then it's like, oh, shit, now what? Now what do yeah. we do? <laughs> I agree with you for sure. I, I think it's uh, the way it is training. Um, don't get me wrong. I love using cell cams. Um, Ditto. I use them all the time, just like you guys do. But um, yeah, it's like, how far are we going to take this? Um, crossbows, same thing. Baiting as well. Um, I don't know, man. It, it, it's crazy. Like it's, it, it's hard to say like it, it like we've just become far more efficient with success rates because of all of these things that are helping us. And I get it. Like we all want to be more successful as hunters, but like it also, it makes it easier for everyone really. And it's like, how, yeah, how far, how far are we going to take this? Um, well, dude, it seems like, um, you know, even as like ethical bow hunters, like there's kind of like, um, like there's opportunities for things like, you know, Jeremy and I both hunt Ohio and, and Kansas where you can bait, you know, and I know that's a, a debated thing, like whether you should be able to do that or not. But it, it almost seems like, man, if if you didn't do that, like even if you if you didn't want to, um, everybody else is, is doing it, and you're at a major disadvantage if you don't do it. You you could look at cell cameras the same way. I think you could look at crossbows the same way. Acknowledging that, like there there's a time and place for those things. Absolutely. Um, I think as time goes on, and I, you know, I I see. I just see the way that we're trending, man, at this point, dude, I, I, I would, uh, like if it was a voting system, like we were voting for or against things like I, I, am leaning towards anything that's making, uh, it harder to kill deer. Like I, I want deer to have the best chance possible. And if that meant, uh, you know, getting rid of cell cameras, getting rid of baiting, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, getting rid of crossbows in some capacity, you know, and not to single those guys out, I'd be willing to make sacrifices too. Like I, you know, we bait in Ohio, I think out of like necessity, it seems like, like I said, if you're not doing it, your neighbor is going to, and that's where the deer are going to be. I would love to eliminate those stuff. And that meant, if that meant me backtracking, even off of whatever, if somebody wants to come after me for shooting a compound bow, because that's too deadly of a weapon. Like, okay. Yeah. There's a line somewhere, but okay. I, I mean, it, it to just be in line with my beliefs. Like I, I'm willing to make sacrifices and I want to see these whitetails thrive like I, I want them to have the best chance to survive and get to an old, older age class as possible um but that's that's hard for people to because people don't want to make sacrifices they want to be able to go out and i mean we've all seen an do increase i mean it, it, it's no like rex obviously not <clears throat> to pick on your age right but but when you uh, when did you start bow hunting oh let's see would have been 1979 i guess yeah Right. So think about the number of people during archery season you would see in the woods then compared to now. Oh, it's uh, the success rate even back then was, Yeah, you start to look at the amount of hunters, but I, I you know, I, I don't look at this one as much anymore as an age thing as a different situation thing. Mm -hmm. And that there's so many different situations that we're dealing with today that, you know, we're dealing with you know, trespassers dealing with poachers. Mm -hmm. I mean, poaching's still big, big thing. People don't, you don't see it and hear about it, but it's happening. Mm. Trust me. 
there's probably in a year go by, we don't hear a story right here around here. But, and then you're dealing with people that don't have time to hunt. You're dealing with people that want to hunt, that don't know how to hunt. You know, education to me is probably the biggest thing all of us can do. Right. Having conversations. I, I love talking to people about deer hunting and educating them. And, you know, one of the biggest problems is most people don't know how to age deer. They really don't. Yeah. And, uh, and you don't learn that, you know, it, it takes experience. It really does. And so that that's, you know, that's another problem in it. So it's a really, it's a dynamic problem. It's, it's big right. and it's, everybody has a different situation on what you do and how you deal with it. But I think conversations like we're having now and, and getting the word out and getting people educated and interested in it, you know, as not just a one or two week thing mm. of the year is what's going to change it because it's, it's definitely going to come to a head, you know, technology is moving up and it's going to continue to move up to make it easier for people. But as people become successful, they're going to get bored with it too. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's how I think all of us evolve we learned more about it and now we want to conserve. We want to, you know, we want to teach people that, you know, uh, dead deer don't grow. Mm. And, uh, Dr. Grant Woods, I was, I, I still say that all the time and, and teach people that, you know, you've got to become educated on aging deer. So when you're out in the field, you know what you're taking because it happens a lot, yeah. you know, and people, People say they killed a nice deer, but in the back of their mind going, oh, God, I, I didn't realize he was that small. He was that young. Dude, that's it's a, just education. Yeah. That, that aging deer thing, you know, I'm with you. Like, that that seems like the baseline for, like, how do, you, how do you manage deer is, like, you know, aim for an age class would be the way to do it. I'm at the point now that I just, like, I've all but given up on thinking that's even possible. Like, I mean, I know, I was just telling Jed last night, dude, if I had a, I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that, um, whatever it, it was a, a mature deer when it wasn't, or what, I'd have like 25, 30 bucks probably mm -hmm. like within the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Like legitimately yeah, pe people are just wrong so often, you know, and it's not just like everyday hunters. It's like, you see that even on, on TV shows, you know, you see guys shoot a two year old and they're like, that's a mature buck. And it's like, clearly, it, clearly yeah, it's clearly not. not like it's, it's misinformation and whether they, they know that and they're saying it anyways, or they, they don't know that, which is even more embarrassing, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's the, um, it, you know, there's a couple things at play here. And it's not, we, we beat on it a little bit um, a few weeks ago on this podcast. But, you know, we're, we're all, as a, as a hunter or as a landowner, we're all under the mandates of the state wildlife department, whatever that might be in your, your area. Right. So, um, we as hunters and landowners, and, and this is more for the landowner aspect of it, have to abide by whatever those regulations are set forth from the state level. And I get that because, um, you, you can't micro micromanage down to an individual property level. Um, you know, to it's impossible, you know, so they're going to lay this out from a state level. The problem is, is that if we are active managers of a, of a piece of ground or a couple different pieces of ground, those state guidelines are, are usually not beneficial to the way that we manage. Um, they are, they're usually too loose um, to how we want to manage, or in some cases, in, in let's say does, for instance, they're not loose enough. You know, and so that I can't harvest enough does off my property without spending an extra $1,500 on tags because I'm an out-of-state resident. 
And so, you know, when you have that side of it, I get it in that you're trying to manage the resource on a landscape level. The fact is the people who are really spending a ton of money on, on property management and investing into that, that herd itself um, aren't necessarily given the, the flexibility to manage it to the way it probably needs to be. Um, and that's not saying that, that we need to lean towards private, privatization of wildlife. That's, that's a, a whole different sensitive topic. But if you start to look at the, the amount of private land that is under what I would consider some sort of management activity from that landowner, it's a lot more than it was you know, 50 years ago. Um, and, and we're not adapting to that as a society, um, as a state wildlife level, as a country even. And so it's something that that's going to come up sooner than later. I mean, you know what, Texas now is like 90 plus percent private land, um, you know, and that's why they start having these like managed deer permits and all this stuff that's catered to managing your property as a private landowner. It's because most of Texas is private. Um, I understand that Pennsylvania and Missouri and things like that are, are still different and that we have a lot of public land. But but how do you start to give some flex to it? Yeah, there's DMAP and there's things like that. But it's still, you know, I, I can't control my how my neighbor harvests bucks because he just sees them and he thinks, well, I, I can shoot three, so I should shoot three. No, that that's not necessarily best for the herd and for the landscape. Um, it's just because you're allowed to do it doesn't mean that you should do it. And, and that's where this, it's a real fine line between where we're at in this efficiency of killing as a society of hunters and what actually should be harvested <laughs> it's a it's, yeah, a it's a complicated issue guys and, and very complicated we, you know obviously jeremy and i don't have like beef with any of these state agencies no. I, frankly you know to, to I try know to most even, of them yeah to try to even imagine uh you know trying to make all of these different groups happy um like i think jeremy and i come to this like argument with the acknowledgement that like not everybody has to hunt like us. Like not everybody has no. to bow hunt mature whitetails. Like that's, that's not for everybody. Um, it can't be for everybody. Um, there's simply not enough resource to do that. And so, you know, you've got guys that are going to hunt one weekend out of the, the season so that they, it's the one weekend they can get away or, you know, they hunt to spend time with their, their grandkids or whatever. And so like, you know, Jeremy and I, I think just amidst all of the, the regulation and while we're dealing with a limited resource are trying to like, make the most of it for our, for our own situation, but also, you know, leave room for people to, to hunt for their own reasons. Well, let me put us down this rabbit hole just a little bit further before we, we jump out. The, the thing that gets me, I guess, is, um, and I'm all for it, right? I've got a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. So, um, you know, my goal is to get them passionate about just the outdoors. Like if, if you know, I don't force them to hunt. If he doesn't want to hunt, great. Don't go hunting. You want to hunt tomorrow? Cool. We'll go then. Where, where I have a little bit of frustration on the state agency side is that we have, we have done a lot of work in the last decade to recruit and grow hunter numbers. And, and it's because the, the mindset up until recently has been, we're declining, we're declining, we're declining. Pretty soon we're going to be such a minority that, you know, the general public will say hunting's no good. Let's get rid of it. Right. That's, that's what we've all been told. The most recent numbers from U.S. Fish and Wildlife is that's not the case, that in fact we have more hunters today than we had in 2004, basically. And so we have done a lot of liberalization to hunting seasons, to bag limits, to season dates, 
um, to the efficiency of the weapons that we're even being able to use. I mean, at one point, dude, like, there's a lot of people that haven't even acknowledged that. There's a lot of people that saying. would still say we're in a we're in a. Uh, that's why I want to have this dive. discussion. Is yeah. that you know. When I think of muzzleloader, I think like old school flintlock because that's basically what I have to use here in Pennsylvania. Now we're talking about muzzleloaders that will shoot 500 yards from some of these precision companies. And, and I'm not saying that like these guys shouldn't exist, but we have not adapted the way that the season limits and dates and, and liberal bag uh, opportunities and, and even just hunting opportunities in general have been because it's still thinking we need more hunters, we need more hunters, we need more hunters. Guys, we're hu- we're hunting a, a finite resource. And so now these numbers come out and say, well, we're actually up significantly from 2004. And it's like, well, what the hell? Yeah. My, <laughs> my friends have all, we've all had the same discussion um, and, and are on the exact same page as you, Jeremy. And it's, um, it, it, it's wild. I, I just don't understand how like we've been told that for so long. And then now this comes out and it's not actually the case when in reality, the last, you know, decade, we've been saying the same thing to ourselves. Like, man, like, it just seems like there's more hunters every year. Man, yeah. Every year. Like, wow, this has been hunted out here, but wow. You know, and don't get me wrong. Yeah. I do think that there's more hunters, but another aspect to it all is like the accessibility of information and finding places to go is like, obviously at an all time high, um, for good reason with, with technology and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm even the one that's promoted it. You know, I, we, we promote hunting. That's, that's our sure. job. That's what we do. Um, so I get it. I'm not, I'm not saying that um, we're in the wrong and what we've done and where it's at, but like, it's just something that needs to be looked at and um, possibly changed to, you know, to conserve like where we're all, we're all talking about. Well, and obviously I think there's still a way to promote hunting with uh, the end goal of that doesn't necessarily have to be like recruitment you know, that, that straightforward, like, you know, it would be, you know, what, why we do it essentially, or a different style of doing it or a different way to approach it so that it can be that much more enjoyable or whatever it is. I don't think the end goal of promoting hunting has to be to like bring more hunters to the table. Well, and I'm not even arguing the fact that we need restrictions, like, you know, that Missouri should go to a, a one buck state though. I think that would be great. Just like if Ohio got rid of baiting, I think that would be great. I, I'm just saying that I don't hear enough from these state agencies when things happen, when things change to say, hey, guys, what do you think? Yeah. Let's evaluate this. Or the answer I get in the case of, you know, Pennsylvania from a Sunday hunting, which don't get me wrong. I'm a, like, I think all Sundays should be wide open for Pennsylvania. I've been in favor of that for a long time. I just want to see the data from last year. The season has closed. Now we're almost at the the second season closing. Somebody just tell me how many more deer did we or did we not harvest because of Sunday? That's all I'm, that's all I'm asking. And PA still hasn't released that? They won't. They said, we're going to wait till three years, and then we'll take a look at the average. And, well, and they, won't even, they won't even let you see the data? They won't divide it. Down. They'll let you see the harvest data, but they won't tell you how many of those were actually harvested on the new Sundays that were open up. And that's what I'm saying. I, I, all I'm asking is for transparency here, just like in the state of Missouri, the fact is, is like, okay, cool. We can see how many people killed two bucks, how many killed three. And again, it's on a reporting scale. So now you got to trust the accuracy of the reporting that's happening, which is flawed in itself. Um, but, but there are things occurring and there's changes happening. And yet 
the public who I think should be more involved in determining like, hey, should we keep this? Should we change this? Is being very left in the dark until, and I get it, It's uh, things can change. Like COVID 2020 is going to be different than this season was in 2021 in terms of participation numbers and harvest and things like that. But but at least let us see it, you know. And and I know you think you're preventing the fire. Frankly, I think you're you're preventing some of the people who are concerned to see the data. And then three years from now, what if it was like, oh, you know what? We increased our entire harvest by six percent because we let Sundays happen. Well, that's not a good thing necessarily. Maybe that's why I didn't see any bucks this year. I I don't know, you know. So well, in a state like Pennsylvania, it's just going to look at license sales. They're going to say, and that's it's, where it's not it goes as back to the catch yeah. per unit effort. Is like these guys don't care about ma- making mature bucks. They care about sell and and opportunity. Uh, I, I'm I'm on the same page. I, I agree with that. Um, I I feel like um, a lot of the state agencies are are all about um, you know license sales and it's unfortunate because that's you know we obviously want far more than that that really doesn't i don't know well, it's, there's other ways to for for them to generate revenue you know it's obviously it's not my not my career uh, i'm not involved in in the agencies and, and there's the decisions they make they probably far, know far more than i do mm-hmm. um in that realm but maybe there's got to be other ways to, to generate well, revenue it's all based um, on federal dollars right it's it's area public land mass and and hunter uh license sales that ultimately lead to a federal fund that is then divvied up amongst the states but a state like missouri has a sales tax in place making them the richest department in the country right clearly they are and so what what i'm advocating for here is we haven't changed the system. The reason that we're so concerned about hunter numbers and opportunities because the system is still based on how I get those federal dollars to the state. I'm not necessarily even blaming the state in that manner as much as, hey, should we not? Like things have changed in the last hundred years. Let's take a look at what Pittman Robertson did and it was great. Now, how could this, like, how have things changed? Because we're spending way more money on equipment as a hunting community than we used to. All of those lead into the PR fund. We're spending a lot more money on travel uh, and economy boost to these local areas, like on, on private land management well, yeah, too. Nobody used to go to to Kansas to travel in November. Now it's full of hunters because it's an awesome state to go hunt if you can get a tag. And so things have changed and evolved dramatically in the last fifty years. That hasn't. It hasn't changed. It's been very much stagnant. Into this is how the algorithm forms, and this is the calculation, and this is how much money this state gets. Well, that simple fact that like these state, some of these state agencies, anyways, are are, are geared for like uh, generating revenue. That simple fact, I think, puts them at odds with private land managers. You know, and the yes. fact that you know, as as a landowner, we want to do what's best to for, for the herd, right? And so we're improving habitat. We're trying to get deer to a certain age class. You know, meanwhile, the state is just trying to bring as many hunters to the public lands or to the state in general as as possible. Those those two things are. They're counterintuitive. You know, they're working against one. Even if you're a public land hunter, like ultimately <clears throat> there is a finite amount of public land. The more people you put on it, the <laughs> the least chance that you have of being successful. It's it's not like people will say this. We get this all the time, guys, on our because Jared and I are very we hunt public land where we where we have to or where we need to. Um, but we're also very passionate about private land management and, and wildlife management on our on our own ground. 
but it's also because like guys listen you don't want more people hunting your public land there there isn't well that's there's not enough room that's the paradox and that like a lot of people at least traditionally haven't wanted to say is that like as hunters, like if we sit here in this table, we're like, well, we want an industry and we want innovation. We want, you know, cool new products. Like we enjoy that aspect of it, but who here wants to see another hunter in the woods? Like raise your hand, <laughs> you know, no, there's nobody. So, and so it's like, it's such a double edge. It's a weird conversation to have. It really is. It is. I, you know, I, I was already, I was sitting here thinking about that. Like what I said about cell cams, I absolutely love them. Um, I do. It saves us so much time and effort and all everything. Um, but like, like I was saying, like, how far are we going to take this? Like it's changing. Everything's changing because of, of all of that. And, and like you said, Jared, like with the, you know, seeing another hunter there, especially if you're on public, you're like, Oh, this is a, you know, I found this hidden gym. And then all of a sudden, bam, you yeah, know, yeah. you find boot tracks. You're like, wow, someone was just here. Um, whatever well, it may be. Like, Sean, since we, since we spoke last, that was before our, our mule deer hunt in November. So we didn't draw in Kansas this past year, which is, you know, the first in a, a couple of years. So, uh, I guess not to put the cart before the horse, a lot of other people we found out were in the same boat, whether they didn't draw for Kansas or they didn't draw for Iowa, uh, or they just, they didn't put in for those States. They were just looking for an over the counter opportunity. Uh, we found ourselves in Southern Illinois at the Shawnee national forest, <clears throat> which is yeah. huge. It's like 600,000 acres of, of public land down there. And, uh, in our minds, you know, Illinois is Illinois, man, that should be should be a good trip you know we should be able to get away from people and, and find some big deer um wasn't the case we, we went out and, sp- and spent a week there and uh just were running into guys left and right and and we weren't alone you know we saw some other guys that we knew were um, kind of in the area having the same experience uh colton and i hunted hard for uh you know seven eight nine days i i, I didn't see a deer over two and a half years old yeah. Um, and, and what would happen is we would get to these spots that, um, you know, we uh, scouted them in the, in the, in all, the spring and summer. All too. we have is, you know, maps basically to go on maps and, um, you know, word of, you know, what to look for and stuff, a sign. And so we would go in and find these like great looking spots. We're like, man, this is Illinois. This is what I had in mind. Seems sweet. <clears throat> we would go in and like after two, three, four sits, like we'd start seeing things. I'm like, that it? like there's gut pile over there like oh, there's tracks over here oh there's night eyes plugged into this tree and like ultimately you come to find out all of these spots have just been like haunted hard for weeks and weeks and weeks and like we're not seeing the deer and you know it's it's not a great experience uh f- for me uh let alone like a, a brand new hunter so one of the guys we took with us has hunted with me on my farm he's a young bow hunter you know has had some success uh, you know he put in for us uh or with us for, for Kansas. And I was looking forward to, you know, him getting to experience that and, um, that didn't happen. So we took him along to Illinois with us and, you know, day one, he's getting yelled at by guys out of tree stands and, you know, there's five, six trucks in the parking lot and same thing, gut piles. He's walking past, not seeing deer. And it's just like, dude, this is not hunting. Like, this is not the experience that we, that we wanted to have here. And, so I don't know, we kind of just have like a bad taste for, you know, hunter numbers and, and, you know, obviously we're going to keep hunting public land, but man, if that's the experience people are going to have on public land, like, trust me, there's, there's better things out there. And unfortunately it, they seem to be on private land, mm-hmm. at, at least on the Midwestern States. I know the West is, you know, still has some, some room there, but. Yeah, I agree with you on that. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really tough. Um, I, I had an Iowa tag this year and I stuck to public land and, 
looking back now, I wish I wouldn't have, um, just because like, I, yes, I had success the year before, um, but gosh, I, there was a lot of luck that went into play to it. And, you know, looking back now, it was, it was so tough. There was, there was still a lot of pressure on the public land that I was hunting, um, running into, I mean, another thing is I was running into cell camps all the time. Really? Like, yeah. And wow. it's like, yeah, dang, I didn't, you know, I, I actually didn't run into them, um, the year prior to, but I did this time and I was like, geez, man, there's just nothing's untouched. Um, and it, it made it really, really, really tough. And I didn't end up filling the tag, which, um, sucks, but it is a reality and it happens, but it's just, I don't know. It's like one of those things, like it, it's tough in the Midwest, really, really tough in the Midwest. It's been very tough for it to, um, just hunt public land in general. And man, it just seems like you have to go further and further. Like, and, and so for us, like, but it's finite. I mean, you can only go so far before it's like, exactly. there is no more. It's like, you have to go <laughs> all the way to like Kansas or all the way to Oklahoma or wait five, six years to draw in Iowa, you know? And, and I'm sure there's opportunity. Like all that has to happen is a big deer has to be there. Like, sure. it's not like this area is good and this one's not, you know, generally yeah. speaking, I guess you could say it, there just has to be a big deer there. Uh, you know, and ideally they're, they're unpressured, you know, you, we want to hunt unpressured whitetails as much as possible. I think that's just, that's what we're seeking. Like, that's what we have fun doing, but it's just turning into more and more like, you know, the accessible States are pressured and you know, they don't necessarily, uh, well, they're harder to find those, those experiences we're looking for. So Rex, are, are you primarily just hunting the home farm there in Missouri? Or are you guys, are you traveling with Sean and the guys to go other places? Uh, I, I do some traveling, not as much as they do, of course, but yeah, yeah I've, Hunt out Wyoming. I mean, I've hunted all out west, and but tip, you know, whitetail, just here in Missouri, actually. Yeah. So, Rex, are you full- probably going to be hunting Kansas next year, though? Are you full time bow hunter at this point? Uh, full time Heartland. Am I? Yeah. What do you call full time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean- the full full time. Uh, get it done boy for him i guess gotcha. <laughs> awesome. so you're retired outside of you know do, yeah, yeah, I'm retired. Showers, yeah yeah that's what you're asking yeah i retired i don't know six seven years ago cool so well in kansas yeah. kansas is a state like obviously like that was the i think that was the first state my dad ever hunted out of pennsylvania was we took him to kansas and like i said you know it was like Oh, this is what deer hunting is actually, yeah. actually like, you know, but there's a state that frankly, I'm a little concerned because the number we got didn't get drawn. So now we've got a preference point where, you know, for eight years straight, it was like, draw, draw, draw every year, you know, and now you look at the number of people applying there, like at some point that state either it, you know, it's probably going to fill the effects of that. Like there's a reason Kansas is so great. It's got massive deer area, right. Landscape for them to hide. But as more pressure comes into that state, Eventually, the one thing that made it so good was the age structure. I mean, you could kill, uh, I killed an eight-year-old buck. You know, I probably saw nine and 10-year-old deer out there. And all of a sudden, you're going to start seeing that age structure come down to where, you know, you're probably going to have to work to find four and five-year-old bucks in Kansas. And that won't be fun. Well, and it's not that we don't like to work. It's just that that's 17 hours away. And it's damn near impossible to get out there other than the week we're actually hunting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree with that. I, I was thinking about that while we were all talking about this, about how I feel like, um, you know, there, there's really no, there's no hidden gems. I remember, I mean, yeah. it was just five to 10 years ago, people would be like, what's, what's your favorite state? And, you know, I might say something like, uh, I feel like actually, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been like, well, man, I feel like uh, 
South Dakota is kind of like a hidden gem. Not, not anymore. anymore. <laughs> not anymore. You know, I don't think that really exists anymore. And, and back to what I was saying too, like we're all um, probably at fault for that because we'll, you know, <laughs> we promote all we're that. All promoting that's, it. that's our yeah. job and that's what we do. And I, and I get it. But um, yeah, we're kind of at a crossroads now. I feel like where there's nothing's gone untouched anymore. And it's, uh, it's tough. I don't, I don't know the answer to it. I really don't other than yeah. um, just find ways to kind of conserve conserve things and and um i don't know if there's there's no there's not a perfect proper way to go about it but um i just think we need to reevaluate certain things and in in all states really yeah i agree i think that you know when you start to look at some of these states like you you bring up with the south dakota and stuff um you know it's not that all the big bucks are getting killed it's that the biggest killer of big bucks is pressure and so when people get into areas uh that pressure essentially buries that deer right and and you can be a great hunter and you can you can read sign and you may get lucky but but every bit of pressure that's put onto these places makes it harder and harder and harder to kill that deer um and and i think what you end up starting to see in some of these places where i fear is that i do think that there is a lot of new hunters coming into this apparently according to the data there are or there's a reactivation whatever it might be where I get worried is the harder it is to be successful, the quicker that that peak number is going to start to drop fast, real fast. Because in today's uh, society, our attention spans are, are nothing. And so if these new people come in or these new reactivations come in and it's, you know, they have an experience like we did on public land in Southern Illinois, they're going to be like, yeah, this is why I gave up hunting or whatever. And so all of a sudden we're going to be riding this false high that's going to fall out from underneath us. And then we are going to have an issue, right? We are going to have trouble. So it, it's great that we're at these numbers, but again, it's a limited resource, uh, no matter what state you live in. So, well, well, in addition to just like, you know, these deer being harder to kill and stuff, like there, there's just something about being in the wilderness, like, you know, with, even if it's just the perception of like, people haven't been here, you know, if not ever, you know, even recently, like I, dude, I know one of the first times we went out to Kansas and like, there were some parts of North Dakota. I felt like this is just magical. Like th this is just like a totally different world. It's like, I get to step into this thing and it's like, it's, it's untainted by human pressure and stuff. And so, you know, whether we're seeing the, de the deer or not, like there's just a feeling, you know, and I just, I hate to keep throwing public land, like in, into the ring on this one, but it's like, it tends to be on public land that it's like, you don't get that feeling. Like, it's just like people have been here, like they're, they're sign of it everywhere. And you just kind of miss out on that whole part of the experience that I think we're seeking out for, for one or two weeks out of the entire year. It's like, I want to go somewhere where people aren't and, and spend time, you know, it, just in God's creation. I just want to be out there, you know, mm -hmm. and, and not see people. It's hard and to that, find. That's, that's the thing that I think is the saddest for me is like, cause when we went to Illinois, I full and you know not to throw Illinois under the bus. I'm sure there are parts of Illinois that are still awesome, you know. But when when we went out there, like I was expecting an experience of like remoteness to be able to get away from people to just enjoy that, and um, we didn't get it. Um, you know, I felt kind of robbed of that. Well, I mean, to to piggyback on the whole public thing, it's just as bad as private because we've had I don't know if it was I think it was Don Higgins and a couple other guys we were talking to. You know, they bring up Pike County, Illinois, which you know at one point in time, Pike County, Illinois was the mecca, right? When people said that that name, you're like, yeah, giant bucks there. 
these guys are telling me, and again, I haven't hunted there, I haven't been there, that it's like the most overrated part of any whitetail county in the world at this point. Like that Pike County is not the Pike County that everybody thinks it is anymore. Uh, and I'm sure there's still individual farms in that area that do produce, but as a whole, you know, that area had basically gotten you know, commercialized from an outfitter standpoint. Uh, and then lease prices came in and, and guys from out of state, you know, came in and, and, you know, killing 130 or 140 inch deer at one point was great, but like that place, those, those were three-year-olds, right? And so the mature bucks age structure just continued to decline to where, you know, a lot of people will tell you like, yeah, like I, I wish I didn't buy here or I didn't have a lease here. You know, uh, I'm sorry. I want to let you guys respond. I don't mean to keep jumping in here. Uh, what I, what I just said there, I think I answered my own question of like, so we, we debate or have conversations with a lot of guys that claim that they're like public land is where it's at. They really enjoy the challenge of hunting these pressured animals. I, I can appreciate that. But, but I think what I just said there, at least for me is the reason that that's not what I prefer like I want to be humbled by the landscape and by like just just the wilderness and like to, you know you, you're not gonna get that out out of a highly pressured piece of land even if I go and kill a big buck there like that's cool and yeah that is what I'm trying to do you know but even I think more than that like I want to just experience r r like being away from people and you know typically I do think that that overlaps with opportunity to kill big bucks like they want to they also want to be in a, in a remote <laughs> yeah. place right but. Yeah. Yeah, that that public land stuff, um, th those those experiences are much harder to find. So, like, yeah. I've talked to a couple a uh, couple guys that are completely different than they they were like four months ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that said, we're we're gonna yeah, and, I, and I get it. Yeah. Like, I get exactly where you're coming from. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. well, and I, I do think like, to yeah. your point, Sean. I do think you know, even though they're getting some more pressure, I still think the Dakotas. You know, some of those more Western states oh, I love those places. are in a little bit different situation than like Southern Illinois, for instance. Yeah, for sure. You know, or yeah. Ohio. Oh, but or, to your point, like it, it, there's nobody, I don't care if you are just a, I hunt public land for the challenge. Nobody is set up in a remote spot in public land and then sees a guy walk in on him and says, yeah, that's cool. Like nobody, nobody does that. Love that. Yeah, nobody does that. Nobody says, "Well, challenge accepted." No, you get there, mad. Well, no, no, man. no. There are some. There like, is nobody that says that. Nobody says a guy walks no, in, there pumps up eighty yards from him. They're like, well, "Hey, man, challenge accepted." Just just a week or so ago, we talked to John Eberhart. Do you guys know who that is? I feel like I do. I know he's name. he's known for. You know, Rex. He's probably maybe even ten years older than you are, and he's been hunting out of a saddle, like he hunted with. You know, tethered. He's high that, pressured. That's his Michigan, thing. like high pressured public land. And he'll too. tell you, he's like anybody can kill a buck in the Midwest. It's easy. He's like, I, he's like, I get satisfaction out of killing bucks that everybody shot at, that every or you know nobody can find, like in these really high pressure areas. And I was like, well, it's, it's interesting. You know, I I can understand how that you know you might get that sense of accomplishment. It's, it's just a different thing, but it's a shame that those don't offer that experience of you know it being in the wilderness that i'm talking about mm -hmm. it's just a, it's just a different thing i guess he's adapted yeah. <laughs> and i haven't <laughs> that's tough he's, that's he's tough. got a different expectation though. Yeah. that's I mean, it that's, that's exactly all this boils back to it Every, i mean that's it. yeah we as hunters if you went and quarried hunters today the, the amount of different expectations you're going to get out of people is just off the map 
And then you start talking about land management. We start talking about public property and, and, you know, these conservation departments do, I think they can do a better job. Yes. But they have to deal with all of this. They have to put all this together, put us all in this big bowl and figure out how do we manage all these people, all these resources and make everybody happy. Well, it's not going to happen guys. It just ain't going to happen because here we are at where we're at and what we do. It's, mainly because we've had the opportunity to be good, to go out and experience all this stuff where you have a lot of these younger hunters and hunters that don't have the opportunity to have jobs and can't go do this. They just want to get out there, yep. you know? So, and then, and, and, and we're all trying to put all this in one basket. It's not going to happen. I oh, think, no. I think what's going to happen here is, you know, with regard to public property, in these areas where it's getting overpressured, it's going to have to be managed and it's going to have to be quotas of who hunts, where, when yep. they're going to have to go to that point to, for everybody, because, you know, there's a safety factor involved in it too. And then when you look at it, at, at private land ownership, we got to create more co-ops among ourselves I mean, mm-hmm. where landowners get together and get on the same page and put their expectations together so that they can manage the properties on a bigger level. And that's hard to do. It really is. I mean, Missouri Conservation Department promotes it and they try to put it together, but it, it still boils down to each individual landowners. Do they want to fall into that game and play that game? Yep. And, uh, and there you go again, it's all, it's the expectations of what each individual person wants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I talk about it and think about it all the way along. And I, I wish I had an answer to it all, but I don't yet, and, no. and, but it's all going to come to head. I mean, yeah. The public public property thing alone, uh, you know, technology hasn't helped that. <laughs> Technology's yeah. made it so easy too. What, what with, do you think with, that looks like, Rex? You keep saying it's it's going to come to a head. I mean, what do you what do you think that that? Well, looks like? I think all the things you guys talked about, and and I think some of this public property runs in cycles. I really yep. do. I mean, it it runs in cycles where like you go have a bad experience, you're not going back. Well, you're one of probably twenty people that had that bad experience, so everybody goes away. Well, there's a small group of guys that go, wow, nobody's going to hunt it. I'm going back in and it mm-hmm. starts over again. Yeah. I see it here in Missouri. Missouri's got a ton of public property and we've got a piece up here that I don't think gets hunt, hunted a whole lot for archery. And we've talked to people that have killed some nice deer off of it. Well, that word gets out and boom, boom. it goes right yeah. back into people start hunting again. But I think the answer to it though, is going into some of these properties and experimenting with a quota type system where you let guys go in and they had a prescribed area for prescribed time. And, you know, then, you know, they feel like at least they have a little more control over their destiny. Well, and that's where I think the deep South, I would be up for that. The deep South is ahead of us on that. You know, if you look at, uh, I'll, I'll use Mississippi for example, because that's where, you know, I live. There were some places that were open to hunting, you know, year round, most of that area was quota based and a lot of that area was uh you had to kill a doe first before you could shoot your buck and and so when you have these control factors in that kind of mindset um you you by default control the amount of pressure in those areas um and so i think as you start to look at kind of what some of these these states have done down there even and and i'll use mississippi as that example you know there's a Yes, they have less hunters than most of our Midwest or Northeast states, but it could be adapted and it could be used. Um, I, I do think that, you know, 
Kansas will be the next one who's forced to adapt something like an Iowa where you're going to need at least one, if not two preference points at some point. Um, because if they don't, it'll get out of hand really quick. Um, so, you know, it, it can happen. It could get adapted. I think what people have to realize, though, is uh, almost all of us will have will start our hunting career on public, right? It's not unless you have family on farm or you or you have really good access to someone, you're gonna hunt public at some point in your life, and you're gonna have positive experiences. I killed, I, I hunted um, the city property in Columbia when I lived there, and I killed a lot of bucks off of that property, and it was public, wide open public. I had to go to like a a one day course basically to be qualified to hunt it, but then. Yeah, man, I killed tons of bucks. And I killed tons of bucks on the conservation areas. You can do it, and it's going to make you a better hunter. I mean, I attribute a lot of my success on private ground because I had to bust my balls to figure out how to kill deer on public. Um, I, I think that any hunter, though, and, and Eberhardt's probably uh, you know the outlier of the group. For sure. Um, but any hunter eventually wants more, right? Or... You know, it was, it took only so many guys to hunt some of these same places that I was in to figure like, this is just like, I, it made hunting miserable and that's not what it's supposed to be. You're supposed to love it. You're supposed to enjoy it. You know, it only takes a few times of being in the spot you think's the right spot to get walked in on and guys pump up 50 yards from you to say, yeah, forget this. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so to say kind of um brashly that you're like well no i'm only gonna ever hunt public because it's the challenge of it uh frankly i think it's because you don't have the option to hunt private and that's okay but don't go bashing anybody that's wanting to manage and hunt private because they have the opportunity and that that's a it's a fine line there but it's something that i'm, I'm hearing more and more from certain groups which is yeah like I, anybody can go onto your property and kill a giant buck uh, apparently not because i can't you know like it's it's just one of those things that like you can't judge me because you're not in my shoes and i'm not going to judge you for being in your shoes but don't say that you'll never hunt private uh and you'll always hunt public because i don't think that'll be the case especially if you are uh granted access to private i don't know it's just yeah. where i said but yeah no, and another thing that i was thinking about too is like timing like you know, we're, we're on here kind of complaining about, um, public places that we've gone and hunted this year, um, or over the past couple of years. And it's been, um, been crowded and whatnot, which I've run into that plenty of places, but I also have to tell myself too, I'm like, look, dude, you're here for a week and yeah. you're like visiting this, this certain piece of public that you think is, is overcrowded, like two days out of the season or whatever. Well, if you're local to that area, um, you can obviously monitor those situations and there's definitely times across the season um, days throughout the season where nobody's there. And it's yep. actually, um, you know, there, like you're saying, Sean, there's definitely an aspect of like residents versus non-residents that, you know, maybe we don't acknowledge enough, but that's because we're not from a, a big buck state necessarily. We're usually on the traveling end of mm -hmm. it as opposed to, to the people traveling to us. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you're right. Yeah. Nobody wants to come hunt Pennsylvania. <laughs> But that's also one of the cool uh, things that, that Jeremy and I get to experience is, like, um, I think a lot of people, you know, when they get a taste of something like Kansas or Iowa, are inclined to be, like, to, to move there. They're like, I'm all in. This is where I'm going. And I think that, um, I, I don't know if this is the right word, there's a kind of, like, a diminishing re return to that, you know, whereas uh, 
I, you know, I've, I've been places where, where big bucks live and like, generally speaking, it's not necessarily somewhere I, I, I want to live. Um, you know, it's the, the remote and there's, there's not a whole lot there. And so like we, you know, Jeremy and yeah. I enjoy living here in Southwestern Pennsylvania. And one of the cool things that we get to experience is going to these destinations that have big mm-hmm. bucks and bringing them back, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if I go to Kansas and I kill a, a 160, you know, if I was local to that part of Kansas, they're like, Great. I saw three of those on the way to, on the way to work, you know, but when we bring it back here, guys are like, that's the biggest freaking buck I've ever seen. Like, that's amazing. You know, and that's, that's a pretty cool aspect that Jeremy and I get to experience. What's the expectation side? And I get that. And, and I think one thing that, that Jared and I've kind of come to terms with guys and, and I'm sure you're the same way is like, you know, as much as I want to kill, uh, you know, a five and a half year old buck here on the mountain in Pennsylvania, there's a chance that there isn't one on the mountain. Like he doesn't exist. So, you know, at some point I have to kind of say to myself, well, like what is the best buck on the mountain? And that's probably the deer I should target and kill. Right. Because if I have expectations of, I want to kill this five and a half year old and he doesn't exist. And there hasn't one that existed in multiple years. Like I'm going to be pretty disappointed every season. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. So it's great. I guess from, you know, one of the questions I kind of had for you guys um, and, and maybe looking here even to the 22 side, because, you know, all of us are having pending seasons about the close around in the corner. here. Yeah, we're around sure. in the corner. Like what what gets you excited, you know, here in the next 30 days even? Is it sheds? Is it who makes it through? Is it planning for uh, food plots? Like what, what help what, us help us regain some optimism yeah, what pulls, from the shell what of a man that we are at this point. What pulls you through the next 30 to 60 days? Um, I would say, yeah, just planning for next year and just kind of trying to figure out, I know what, like, um, what I can improve, whether it's not even from a land management side. Um, I hadn't even gotten into this, but like, um, I'm shooting a really heavy setup on my bow and, um, I missed a buck last week at, 41 yards out of a blind and um you know like we've played it back numerous times like the deer's he's eating be- like chowing down on beans it's loud and he's still ducks my arrow like it would have been a perfect shot and how many grains are you uh, shooting uh on your ass i think i'm shooting like uh don't quote me on it but i think i'm shooting like 512 um and uh you know that's not the heaviest setup there out there but it's heavier for me from what i've shot in the past and like it just blows my mind like how how that can happen still and then i shot at a doe um the following day at 29 yards same exact thing give us um, some, give us some more context here sean how many how many pound bow are you shooting i'm shooting a 70 pound bow mm-hmm. um like a 28 inch draw and so what is that uh, what do you get like- 245 245 feet per second which is pretty slow i feel that's like yeah that's yeah. like extremely slow yeah, exactly. For, for, I mean, it's, it's a pretty dang heavy setup for me. Um, and, um, I'm yeah, to so back like, it down. yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back down. Like, and that's a learning experience for me. I haven't really tinkered with that stuff too much yeah. over the years. I've kind of had the same thing. Um, I would say for a while. And then I went, I've gotten heavier and heavier over the last few years because I wanted more penetration. Um, but I think that I, I need to, I need to step it back a little bit and start tinkering with that. And that's one thing that I have not messed with too much, um, in the winter months, because like, like most of us, like, Oh, wow. Deer season's over. Like I'm going gonna, yeah. I'm gonna to set the boat down for a month or so. Like, and that's probably what I'm not going to mess with. Well, that's what I actually want to start messing with. And, and what better time than now, really, rather than, 
you know, the, the traditional, oh, it's June, July, I'm really going to start ramping things up and start, you know, messing with stuff. And that that's where I've actually caught myself. Um, in fact, last time we spoke, like I had things going wrong and that that's my own fault. Well, Sean, um, so Sean, I- we should stay in touch on that stuff. Jer- Jeremy and I kind of went down that rabbit hole like two, two and a half years ago. It, we're not experts by any means, but we've definitely um, vetted a few different like, uh, you know, products and companies and, and have found like a, a setup that works really sweet for us. I think uh, at least I did. I don't know if both of us went kind of too heavy initially and we mm-hmm. gave up a lot of that speed. Mm-hmm. Um, we changed when we started to go to the Dakotas because it was like, well, maybe I won't take the shot at 80, but I want to practice the 80 and at least shoot to 60. And then sure. we were so heavy. It was like, holy shit, like <laughs> that deer is going to be gone by the time it gets to him. Yeah. And that's, that's, I I was okay. Like I I truly was, I was okay. Like shooting under myself personally. I was shooting. I was like, I'm not going to take a shot over 45, 50 this year. I I was fine with that spot and stock out West for white tails here. I was perfectly okay with that and accepted that hundred percent. Cause I wanted, I wanted to sacrifice that for more penetration, but um, you know, I, I obviously I'm, I'm learning still, we're always learning, um, and tinkering and changing things. But, um, another thing that I feel like went into play with that, that buck last week in the doe, um, I think it had to do with also with a blind and a fiberglass blind, which I, I typically only hunt out of a fiberglass blind, um, late season when it's super cold like yeah. that. Most of the time I'm in a tree stand, um, for the most part earlier on. And I think that that sound was actually echoed as well. Interesting. Uh, huh in my opinion, but, um, you know, like I said, we're always learning. I'm never going to have it always, always completely figured out, but well, we're uh, in, we're in that hole right now. I mean, we just had, um, uh, I guess when this drops that podcast, right, we just had uh, Troy Fowler from, uh, ranch ferry on, and he's kind of been that guy who's like, well, it was him and a, uh, was it Aer- aerospace en- engineer a guy yeah. that worked for the DOD for like 25 years yep. studying, uh, like ballistics, and, and these guys—he was like the guy. He had a big dummy arrow, and sh- yeah. you know, they're shooting like six hundred grain arrows, like that. Yeah, I their stuff. I knew that they were shooting even max, heavier setup than me. Well, and and you know, Warburton and those guys at hunting public—they're the same way. Giant single bevels, and like Jared and I, are like I get it. In theory, it makes sense, but I'm also not willing to give up that speed because of distance and and muscle reaction of the deer it's not just gravity it's like that deer will physically move and react speed and cutting surface in way of a mechanical broadhead would be an example of that mm-hmm. you know yeah we think there's kind of such a thing as t- too much momentum if there is such a thing like obviously you want to blow through it a hundred percent of the time but if you could still do that and achieve greater speed and greater cutting surface through something like a mechanical broadhead, I think Jeremy and I are advocating that at least for us, you're, we're going to, Yeah, you know? And so like for that reason, Sean, like to contrast your setup, for example, like, well, let's do yours. Cause you're shooting 70 pounds. So you're mm-hmm. doing 70, 70 pounds. How heavy is your arrow? 430. 430. Okay. So maybe roughly a hundred grains less than yours, but, and you're shooting what? 280, 290? 287. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone might argue yeah. you want a little more sure. speed, but I mean, that's, but my FOC is still at 15, 16%, 16%. That's because we're shooting micro diameter arrows with, uh, you know, ethics archery outserts weighted like, at the front. Yeah. I'm not shooting the ethics archery, but I'm, I'm shooting micro diameter arrows. Yeah, I'm um, shooting I, the victory, the victory. Yeah. Insert. So that's what I've got. Yeah. I've got, was it 60, 65 grains? Yeah. Something like, something like that. that. 55 yep. grains up front. Yeah. We need to talk about this more because I, it's something over the last two years. I really like 
try to research yep. heavily and I see both sides of it now. I do. I was starting, yeah. I, I kind of went like the, the, the ranch, um, ferry, ranch route. ferry route a little bit for the most part. And then now I'm like, after I watched that happen, I was like, all right, you know, I, I don't think there's a, an absolute perfect way. I think there's a happy medium. And, um, I, obviously it sounds like you guys are kind of, exp- we're getting um, there. We're not there yet. It, it makes sense for Troy because he's trying to shoot through the shoulder of a hawk. Yeah, the biggest, baddest pigs in Texas. I'm not. Right. I'm trying to kill a whitetail right. or a muley, and I want penetration. But he's also, to the, and he said it in our podcast, he said, listen, he's like, those animals will die within sight. I see them or I hear them fall, right? My sense is there's going to be times I don't make the best shot. Uh, I want blood. <laughs> I want to be able to track and find that deer. I, I'm, I'm the exact same way. And I've, I've experienced both cases of that. Like, you know, I was only mechanic or I'm sorry, I was only fixed blade broadheads this year with that heavier setup and both bucks that I did kill. Um, Didn't same play. thing, like they died in sight or I heard them both crash. I for sure heard, yeah. heard them both crash when I, I saw fall. But, um, another thing that I've noticed also with the, with the fixed blade broadhead is the blood trail, um, isn't, anything like it is with a, a mechanical, but like I said, I watched them or saw them fall. So that's different. <laughs> well, but. And that's because you hit it in the right place. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so, so those fixed exactly. blade heads don't necessarily give you the forgiveness. Like if I shoot something in the guts, I want the biggest broadhead on there. I can physically get on there. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I mean, I spent countless hours. My dad knows this tinkering with my bow to make sure it was tuned to like a, a T yeah. along with, to, you know, tuning my arrows and all that, not, you know, not yeah. tuning yeah, all bear tune, bear shaft tuning. So yeah. yeah and, and so we're just, I mean, we're, we're in it. We're deep at, at it this time. I get well, Troy's I, point. I, I want to say, I, too, I disagree in a lot of cases. We're approaching that. it from a practical standpoint. Like I, yeah. we've, we've had conversations, a lot of, a lot of these momentum, heavy FFC guys, and there's a lot of validity and truth to what they're saying. Jeremy and I are just saying, I get it. I just think there's room for some of these other things that as whitetail bow hunters, we need to keep in mind as well, which would be, you know, penetration, speed. blood trail, speed. Exactly. Yep. All yeah. Those things. There's another thing too. Like, so, um, some of like Mike and, um, Nate and some of the guys that I hunt with or whatever, um, we were all talking about it. And that was the conclusion we came up with was like, Oh, wow. Your, your arrow's traveling slow. That's why you duck, blah, blah, blah. Maybe you should consider changing, um, arrow setups later on in the season. And I was like, I'm not going to go through that whole process. Yeah, no, that's heartburn. That, that said, um, one thing that's kind of unclear, Sean, is I, I don't necessarily know that even if you were shooting 320 feet per second, that it would have saved you, it, it would have killed that deer necessarily. Like, they, they wow. drop so fast. That, I that's know, but that's, I don't know. that's what's crazy, though, too, is so it's that 41-yard shot. You can see the arrow enter the frame. I don't know the exact distance, but I bet the arrow was within 30 feet of him before he starts to react. Wow. Sean, I, I think you're onto something with the blind. I mean, both those times you're hunting out of fiberglass. What? I, I killed my deer 20 yards from there, what, a month ago in a bale blind? Yep. What, 30 some yards, almost 40? And the deer didn't move. I, I mean, know. I know. I understand that. Yeah. How I fast, is, how fast the does sound travel? Big, plays a big, bigger factor than a lot of people realize. If the deer can't hear anything, he's not going to duck. Yeah, right. Sure. Well, and that that is again one of these heavy on the heavy arrow bandwagon, which I was kind of, but now I'm definitely not. Is the heavier the arrow, the more quiet 
the bow and and arrow is. That's at least the theory behind it. Um, yeah. Well, and if that were the case, granted, this blind may have played a factor, but like a lot of these FOC guys, Sean would have said, "You're shooting the right setup for that. He's not going to hear it." Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I know. And then another thing too, like the redneck that I was in has like it's layered with foam, like to dampen the noise. Yeah, so I don't. It, it, it's a, it, there's a fine line. I get both ways, um, you know, and we're not, we're not experts. In okay. It. So we're not going to beat this. A thousand and eighty eight feet per second is how fast sound travels. Okay. That makes so sense. You might want to dial our bows up a little bit. <laughs> Crank her down a little bit. Hey, uh, some of these crossbows are halfway there. I was just getting ready to say That's <laughs> That said, Sean, you can definitely handle an eight pound bow, dude. Yeah. 80 is that what you said 100 he doesn't need one dude i don't need one yeah I but could if you too. but if you can you should because you're going to get more speed and more momentum out of it i know Botech did just come out with it's um, science an 80 it's science uh, <laughs> simple science i actually thought about trying look at I, rex's face when you said that he's like you're crazy i don't, i shoot 60 pounds that's all i've ever shot i just don't I mean, yeah. I, who, who was that? Uh, Carson's wife shoots sixty-five pounds. Doesn't 65, she? Sixty-five. Yeah, man. That yeah. was, a, and she's not a big girl at all. No, I was. I, I was raised, and though I can't probably do it, my dad would always be like, "Listen, your bow weight should be whatever you can do if you were actually on your head upside down." Well, well here, Sean, I'll get. <laughs> I'll give you an, an example of what you can do, like with an eighty-pound bow, which is what I'm shooting. I'm shooting four hundred and seventy grain total arrow setup at uh, roughly three hundred feet per second. And you were heavier. You were in the fives. Yeah, I was a little heavier. I was shooting, uh, yeah, like 5'11", five, 5'12", five, kind of where you were at, and I was at like 280, and even that wasn't fast enough for me. Yeah. Yeah, I knew I was shooting slow, but like on the bow that I'm also shooting, I have a comfort setting, and I, I could change it to performance where it's shooting faster, but I want yeah. to go for the Oh, that's interesting. Well, we do too. So. Is that 80 versus 85 on the light off? Is that what that is? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, I'm, I'm typically in the line of thought where I want, you know, performance. So I want less let off, but right. I will, and I was shooting that on the, uh, the carbon spiders, what I shot mm-hmm. for, you know, three, four years, uh, on this new RX five, it's not, it's not enough for me. I, I actually, I'm shooting the 85 pound let off 85% let off. Rather. It, it, a lot of the things that we were hearing, Sean, are based on theory and science and math. And I get that. And that's where Ranch Ferry and and these guys, Daryl was the aerospace engineer that was with us talking. And I get it. I'm not arguing their facts. From a, If anything, we were affirmed by the conversation with Ranch Ferry. From a practicality of in the stand, of, number one, I want accuracy. I want blood when it hits, right? And, I, and that kind of goes in tandem with penetration, but it also doesn't. Like, I want a giant hole when it hits, and if I don't get an exit, I still find that deer. Um, and I want some speed. You know, and that's that's really the three things from a practicality standpoint on a white tail, which is why I give a lot of these crossbow guys shit because I've never heard of a crossbow guy thinking about FOC and forward weight and stuff like that on their bolts. They're just blowing a 22-inch bolt out of a 500 feet per second crossbow, you know, and, and there's there's other things that go with that that I think that they can make it a more efficient shooting machine. I just don't think most of them, just like we were, like, I, you know, wasn't, but five years ago, it was like, oh, shoot the lightest arrow I can find to get the most speed period. Um, and that obviously isn't right. Yeah. I think you're on the right track there, Sean. It's just, you know, if you want more speed out of it, you just got to reduce the weight or increase your poundage. 
Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that's what we think I'll be tinkering with here in the next month or so. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> what, what was that? So that's what I'll be messing with the next month or so. Um, cool. I, you know, I'll probably take a break a little bit from like the really honestly, like with deer, um, not having shed, I don't even jack with anything on the farm for at least another month or so. Yeah, yep. so. makes sense. Cool. Rex, what are you doing at the farm this weekend? We're going to try to kill a couple does tonight and tomorrow night, finish the season up, and then I'm coming home. There you go. Do you guys usually go in, Sean, you're the camera guy, so do you guys go in with an idea of how many does you want to shoot on the farm each year? Um, yeah, we argue about it. <laughs> yeah, we do. It's wild because, like, I don't feel like it's where it used to be where we had, like, a, a gigantic doe problem. There's still quite a few, but I don't think it's what it, what it used to be. Um, and so like we'd spent, we spent the last handful of years just trying to knock them back. And, um, I actually personally think that they've been knocked back pretty good. So, um, I think it's getting pretty close to a good ratio where we would want it. Uh, and then hopefully we'll see the results that we're hoping for, but we'll see. How, how many of you guys tried to, if you're comfortable telling us like oh, off, sure. off of what amount of acreage, how many does are you guys shooting? So on that farm there where he's at, it's like, it's between what we lease and, um, own it's, it's right around, I would say 1400 acres. Um, and there were the first few years we killed like mm, 10 to 12 a year. So I would say like over the last seven years, we've killed probably like over right around 50 is my guess. I'd have to look at the book. I don't have the book by me. He has it, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would say like out of all the deer that I was seeing in each sit that I had last week, there'd probably be mm, 40 to 50 deer that you'd see in a sit in an evening. And I felt like the ratio was probably even, um, mm. some evenings and then other nights I might see, you know, where you might see two does to every buck, but yeah. Interesting. We have, some, we have some helpers though. We have some guys that come down here and rifle hunt next to our property that lease it. And they primarily just whack the does the whole week. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what I was going to say. I assume with you, the way that you guys think, which is somewhat how Jared and I think is you probably have a little bit of a sponge effect here in the late season. And that if you've got some really good food sources, you're pulling in a lot of deer to that property. Yeah, we do. Because, yeah, Rex, I mean, you killed your buck, what, right before Christmas this year? Uh, when was it, Sean? Yeah, it was right before Christmas. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. Yep. So, so it, if you want to know what else I'm doing after the end of the season, it's get in my boat and do more fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I've already been fishing, but I'm going to do a lot more. What's the What's the state requirement for size of catfish? <laughs> On the lake, you, got, you better know this by now. On the lake I fish, there's a slot limit, Truman Lake, and it's uh, uh if you're fishing Truman 26, 26 to thirty four, you have to throw back and then you can keep you can keep two over that, but I don't keep any overs at all. If you're so, if you're fishing Truman, I'd just be popping crappie all day. Uh I do some of that too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh yeah, which right I'll on. I'll be doing more of that, but I've started fishing out in Kansas more too for crappie. There you go. So cool yep very cool guys well uh listen we appreciate you guys coming on the podcast it's cool to to kind of hear the dynamic jared and i always talk about our kind of father-son dynamics with our dads and well, it, it makes me feel good that it you know 
I think your guys' dynamic is very similar to yeah. mine and my dad's and yours yeah. and your dad's as well. Yeah. So you guys feel good. You have normal dads now, right? That's right. Uh, we reaffirmed. We reaffirmed it at this point. <laughs> yeah. At least I'm not the only one who's been frustrated. Time, <laughs> well, it's normal. Trust me. Well, like I said, we appreciate you guys coming on. It it really is cool to um, not only watch your dynamic, but also to really see that you guys do share the same passion, uh, passion, and and really even about the show and kind of you know it's funny, Rex. You say that like when you saw it, you're like, yeah, this isn't like what the hunting shows are like, boys. You know, it's this is different. But how that has been adopted by the community and and really, you know, it's become a and one of the premier shows in the industry, I think because it's different. Um, and I think that's a really cool thing for you guys. So uh, obviously really excited to see the next season come out here. And you guys have a ton of digital content coming out too, Sean. I know that, you know, so, um, you know, via your YouTube and social, where else do you guys have digital content dropping? Oh man, we're all over um, like Roku. Um, well, we were on Amazon prime, but we're not anymore. Um, MOTV pretty much cool. anywhere that is like a digital platform for the most part. You can find our content, I would say. Awesome. We try to put our stuff across the board. So Very cool. Well, hopefully we can rope you guys back in right before next season and your bow's in better shape than it was the last time that we talked and, uh, you know, be able to, to kind of get all ramped up for the season. But, yeah, guys, we appreciate you coming on Hunter Podcast and, and definitely, um, you know, excited to see what Heartland Bowhunters got here in 22. Yeah, thank you guys. I truly yeah. appreciate you guys having appreciate me on. It. My dad as well. Yeah. You know, on a closing note, you guys uh, keep keep this podcast so when your kids are our age or you're our age, you can play it back to them. Yeah, I'm sure they'll be they'll probably be bitching about us by then. So, you know, good call, Rex. Yeah, that's, that's, it goes full circle. Trust I'll me. Be, I'll be the one wanting to fish at that point. Full circle, man. <laughs> Well, awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Enjoy the rest of the day. Good luck pounding a few does out there on the farm. And uh, we'll we'll catch up soon. Okay, guys. Thanks. All right, guys. Awesome. Well, really cool, Sean and and his dad, Rex, to be on there. Um, Obviously, you know, we've talked about it at at kind of the inception of Hunter is like um, Sean and Mike and Heartland is somebody that we looked at and said, yes, we like that because it's different. It tells a story. You know, and when we were thinking about making content, um, you know, more show-based content, it was like make Hunter, like Heartland Bow Hunter. Yeah. Um, and so again, like those guys have just been phenomenal, phenomenal at that, and and even just kind of getting into those discussions there at the end. Like, here's a guy, Sean, who's been in this thing for 15 plus years, and like he's still growing as a hunter and trying to figure out how to make better bows, and he makes misses. That's why we talk about it all the time. Like. Listen, you're not you you bow hunt long enough. You're not always going to make a perfect shot, um, but I think it's really cool because you can tell that he and his dad probably don't see eye to eye on everything. But ultimately, they're on the same page of like we love to deer hunt and to manage and to kill big bucks, and that's what we're going to try to do, um, and we're going to try to do it together. So yeah, really cool to see that, and um, also like again, and it, it's not well. T- Dude, it's cool to see. I mean, it's not cool. I wish this wasn't happening, but like, I, I guess it makes me feel a little better to, to see Sean also struggling with like, you know, public private land access, uh, like with issues with his arrows. It's like, dude, you know, these guys, even somebody at the level of a Heartland bow hunter, like these are just, these are hunters. They're you just know? guys. And they're, they're having some of the same issues that, that, that we're, 
you know, navigating ourselves and yeah. And I mean, I know we dove down that rabbit hole on the whole public land, private land thing, and it's not to put anybody at odds. It's just, um, whether it's private land or public land and it's, it's deer, it's a finite resource. There's only so much of it. Um, we want to have a strong hunting community. Uh, it also has to be the bearer of responsibility on every hunter out there to understand that just because it's legal doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And I don't mean that in legality of like baiting versus non-baiting. I mean that in the legality of how many deer can you harvest? What weapons can you use to harvest? Hunting property um, lines. Hunting property lines. Like there, there's a lot of different things. Yeah, just because I can pull out a, an app that says, hey, here's where the private and public border is, from a moral standpoint, doesn't you know mean that that's the right thing to do. Um, no different than you know uh, if somebody says, yeah, like I was friends with these guys, now I'm not, and now I'm hunting this property next to it and I'm going to kill these deer. Yeah, it's legal. Doesn't mean it's morally right. So I, I think that what I'd love for people to continue to talk about is whether you're hunting private or public, if the state says in like a case like Missouri, you can go and kill three bucks during these different seasons. Doesn't mean you should. Um, just because it's not your land because it's public land, be cognizant of what that property can, can hold as a resource and also be respectful to your other hunters who are public land hunters on that place with you. So if you could go out and kill three bucks at three two-year-olds just because you can, yeah, maybe it would be cool if you didn't. <laughs> like, it's a weird thing to do and ask, but because we're having to manage at state levels with the way that the, the commissions and the wildlife departments are set up, we have a responsibility as a hunter to understand that not everything is the right way to do it. Um, or just because it's legal doesn't mean that you should. So, and we treat that like that on our, our private lands. It's just because I can go out and kill a buck um, or kill a bunch of does on my property doesn't mean that I'm going to because I don't want to deplete the resource. That resource doesn't just stay in a high fence on my property. I don't have a high fence. It goes off onto your property. It goes off on the neighbor's property. And so all of you, I thought Rex made a great point there of understanding your neighbors and your co-ops and trying the best of your ability to work with them and communicate with them is going to end up creating a better hunter hunter situation at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, this, this public private, you know, battle back and forth is, is weird. It's, it's a limited resource and it's deer. Deer is the limiting resource. There are property lines in place for a reason, but don't abuse the resource, whether you respect the guy hunting private land or you don't respect the guy hunting public with you. It doesn't matter. Don't abuse the resource to where you're selfish. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's a, a battle. I, I mean, as much as there are guys out there, you know, sh I don't know, trying to shame people for hunting private land or whatever, vice versa. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, I think everybody, like, w I, we want everybody to be able to, like, seek out the form of hunting that, that they, that they truly want. And if that means hunting public land with a lot of pressure, great. I, I hope that you can, you can, that's easy. <laughs> literally, yeah, literally anybody can go out and do that. Yeah. But I don't know. There are some aspects of, you know, hunting, whether it's private land or just secluded public land, or, I mean, this stuff can be found everywhere. You know, it, it's that, that wilderness aspect that I'm talking about, that remoteness, yep. uh, just, just the magic that comes with being alone in the woods. Um, at least for me, you know, that's something that, um, I, you know, I wish everybody could, could the, experience the culmination though. I mean, we all hunt for different reasons. Nobody hunts out there to say, I I'm okay. I know we say it in, in a whim. Nobody really means that, like, I'm okay if I never kill another deer. 
you hunt because you love to hunt. The ultimate culmination is to harvest a deer, mm-hmm. to be successful. And what I want the community to, to feel is that they have at least a chance of being successful. But where we're heading and where my fear is, because we're continuing to think about uh, recruitment, retention, recruitment, retention, uh, reactivation, is that we're going to max our limited resource out here. We're going to push it to a, a point where it's not going to be easy to pull back on. And I understand the fear of the lobbyist in the community of, well, if we don't have hunters, then we're the minority. We're always going to be the minority. Doesn't matter if we have 16 million hunters or we have 20 million hunters. What we can't do, though, is be the force of mass elimination of the limited resource, which is wild game, ducks, deer, turkeys, etc. And we're getting close to that. When, when people drive up on a piece of public ground and there are a, a full parking lot full of cars there, um, that resource is stressed at that point. The private land is part of the glue holding it together. Just like the public leans on the private, the private leans on the public, there's a point of balance there that has to occur in order for that resource to continue to thrive and for all of us to have the privilege to be hunters in this country. We're teetering on that one way or the other. And what I don't want to see is um, us all turn a blind eye to just say, cool, let me see what the regulations say. All right, I can do that. That's not a responsible hunter. Yeah, well, and I mean, I don't think you're saying like whitetails are on a verge of extinction by any means. No. You're talking more about the experience or the opportunity yes. to, to go out, to be secluded in nature, and to hunt a mature whitetail buck. As bringing a youth in multiple use with my two kids into the sport, there has to be an element of success in order for them to be hooked. No six-year-old, no nine-year-old wants to sit out all day in the woods, two weeks in a row, and never see a deer. That's not successful, and that's not going to hold them for the future. There is an element of recruitment and retention that is important there. What I'm worried about, though, is that we're not changing the rules and the regulations that were set forth when recruitment and retention were perceived as dying, decreasing. And all of a sudden these stats come out and maybe they're bullshit. I don't know. I'm, I'm going based off what us fish and wildlife is saying, which is the best stats that we have. They're saying, Oh, by the way, you guys weren't declining. You were actually increasing. What? Well, what about all these liberal measures that we took because we were the declining population? We were the declining participants. Oh, you were actually increasing? Well, how much damage did we do to the populations? How much damage did we do to the hunting success opportunities? And then what does that leave for the next generation? Because that is the important recruitment part. We have enough hunters right now. Per what that guideline says, somebody can argue it. We have enough hunters right now. But if that resource is stressed, there is a cliff that we are walking on every year closer to that eventually we're going to fall off and then we won't have enough hunters. And the people who need to fill the gaps will say, yeah, I went hunting once. It sucked. There was people everywhere. I never saw a deer. That is where my fearful point is that we're going to come to at some point. And no, it's not next year and maybe it's not two years from now, but we're heading that direction as People like Corey experienced their first public land hunt out of state, and it was like, that was the most miserable thing I've ever experienced in my life. 
That's not fun. That's not enjoyment. That's not why we hunt. And it's not going to change anytime soon unless we figure out how to adapt the rules and regulations via states to manage it. Well, here, let, let me just ask like an, maybe an ignorant, but just like open-ended question. Uh, just like asking honestly, like what, what benefit do we get out of more hunters? More money to the states. What benefit do we get out of that? More efforts of wildlife management. We being you and me. I, I say we as the, the citizens of the state. So they manage the public grounds. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That's See where the miss is there? Yeah. And again, my private land in Kentucky borders a large chunk. Well, in that case, it's federal ground, but a large chunk of public ground that I benefit because deer can bet on that public ground and they can come to my property, just like they can come off my property and go into public ground. There's a balance that exists there. There's a there's a coexistence of the two well, dude, pieces of yeah, property. Isn't it? The property line is imaginative. It, it It's political. Isn't it weird though? Like you would think like if somebody just is hearing this for the first time, you would think that public lands would be like the spot that must be the best hunting because that's where all the money it's goes limited for resource. management. When in reality, it's no question. Uh, the private land has more opportunities, more for, carrying capacity, I would say. Yeah. And arguably more effort put into it from a more management money put standpoint. into it. This is where you know, wildlife, and, and I'm not saying that like no, you're you're on. Well, pe- people that uh, you know may, maybe don't own land. It's not like I'm not saying they shouldn't mm-hmm. have the right to hunt, but no, I think they're getting screwed. Honestly, yeah, I think people that hunt public land are getting screwed in today's society because the the agencies and the community and everything about hunting right now is pushing towards bringing in more hunters to cram them into a limited resource, which is known as public land. <laughs> Is it not? Yeah. No, that sounds And right. so even if the money is coming in because there's more hunters coming in, you can only manage the property so much. And it doesn't matter how you manage it. If you got too many people on that piece of property, it will kill that property. It will be no good. And those deer will flee to the property bordering it, typically private. And so you can get mad at the private landowners, but frankly, they're creating the sanctuary that's pre- preserving the resource. Mm-hmm. The public land is not a bad thing. We hunt tons of public land. Where I'm fed up with it is that we're putting too many people, we're cramming too many people into a political boundary that means nothing to the wildlife. And the only dollars that are coming in from the state are going to put into resources of public land management. They're not giving me, in most cases, unless I'm doing you know some sort of assistance program, they're not paying me to make my property better, that's coming out of my pocket to make my property better. Yeah. It, it's a very, it worked. At one time it worked when people who own private land could give a shit less about planting food plots and cutting timber down and making the habitat better. Right. Because the only place that was seeing improvement was public land. In today's society, that's not the case. In fact, most of the money put into management is probably from a private landowner. Oh, has to be drastically. There's a, there's a, there's, we have come to the edge of a very, very steep cliff, which is how many people can you put into public land to maximize dollars over the resource, which is deer and wildlife. Mm -hmm. I, based on that number that we just got from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which I have to assume is accurate, we walked past it and we didn't even know it. And that's why 
when we go to Illinois, again, snapshot, it's a week in one area, packed. People talk about guys like the hunting public going overboard. I don't think it's the guys like the hunting public that have blown this thing out of proportion. It's the states that have continued, 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 well, continued to you know, say, give us hunters, give us hunters, give us hunters. Yeah. Georgia wasn't even on the list in the top 15 states for license sold in 2004. They're at like number five now mm. in the country. It's a massive, I would have to assume they doubled or at least two and a half times well, dude, the amount it, of hunters in that it, state. It can't be the fault of people promoting those places. It can't be. Granted, maybe that is the reason it's for it, them but more it seems aware. like it should be the responsibility of the state agency to, to regulate that pressure. Everything comes down to politics. To say, because it's great. It's great that everybody wants here. That's demand. You know, it should be the state's, uh, you know, place to say, well, we can only allow for this to, to preserve the quality of the And the problem is, there. is we aren't acknowledging that things have changed. Yeah. And thus, this is where we're at. Hmm. So, rant there, but it's because I, I care about the resource, whether it's on my property, that even if those deer are on my property, they're not my resource. They're the resource of the people. That's the whole point. Unless it's in a high fence, those aren't my deer. That's not my buck. It's the property of the people of the of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. If we're sitting here, or the state of Kentucky, or whatever. Ultimately, though, if you're jamming too many people into a limited resource, political bound, public land piece, that resource fails to exist at least on those lands, which is going to then create a tension between the people that hunt that property and me on my own private property, because they're going to say, "Well, that guy over there hoards all the deer." No, no, that's because you got 600 people hunting 1,000 acres. You can't sustain it. Just like if I switch the rules, this property can't sustain having that many people on mine. Hmm. It's not a hard concept to think of, but nobody can change it except for the state politicians. And I don't think that they're paying attention. Yeah, what? and I guess in their defense, like it, it, there are some um, like initiatives, uh, like plots and stuff, like... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that's at least attempting to get the public access to private lands and is compensating those private landowners, you know, for that access. But those private landowners don't care about hunting. They That's why they're in plots is they don't care. Sure. Take over my property, give access, manage it, do whatever you want because I, I don't care about the wildlife. Different than you and I who yeah. we have some cost share programs. We have things like CRP and CREP, but those are all from a federal level. What am I, why would the state not say, hey, you could be a herd influencer using Jeff Sturgis. How can we help you make your property better so that you make surrounding properties better? I'm all ears. Nope. Instead, it's the requirement of me, the private landowner, to pay to make my property better that will benefit people outside of my political border that doesn't matter to the wildlife. And I'm okay with that because I love it. And I know... You do it because you love it. I do it because I love it. But I also know that I'm making a difference on a very, 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 very small level. And that's fine. But I worry for the future of the hunting population because there is only a limited amount of private land for access that if they have to hunt public, we're going to walk off a cliff. And the numbers are going to go from, oh, we were at all times high. Whoa, where did... Five million hunters go. Well, they weren't successful because they hunted state land that's over hunted. Yeah. There will never be, Pennsylvania will never go to a quota form on their game lands. 
they won't do it. People just stop hunting. People just stop hunting. Yeah. And we're close. We're teetering. We're going to go from an all-time high to an all-time low real fast. Blink of an eye. And if you take by what state agencies are telling you of like, well, let's not jump to conclusions. Let's see what happens in the next three years and then we'll average it. Three years from now, it's too late. It's too late. It's already come past. I mean, so back to the uh, original question. <clears throat> Again, maybe an, uh, an ignorant one, but an open-ended one. So what happens at that point? You know, so if all those hunters fall off the cliff, mm-hmm. they don't exist anymore. How does that affect those State agencies lose funding. Okay. Less funding, less people, less ability to do things that are at the state landscape level. I don't want to see it come to privatization of wildlife. There's a reason that we set up the North American wildlife model in this country and that it works. The, the more that those states' agencies suffer, the closer it gets to privatization of wildlife. And what do you mean? Not a good thing. Like, so what does that look like? What is the privatization of wildlife? Essentially, the privatization of wildlife is the state doesn't manage the resource. The individuals manage the resource at a private on a private level, meaning the deer on my farm right now are my deer. They're not. They shouldn't be because you can't influence Yeah, but what, what literally is different? Because it, it is essentially that way. Like, even though, right? You don't set your bag limits. The state wouldn't set bag limits at that point? I see. That's privatization of wildlife. You kill what you can kill. You, people can hunt. Mm. Who hunts? Who's allowed to hunt? It gets real, real, mm. real tight. And it, it, it's not a good... Europe does it. That's That's where it is. It's in Europe. That's why the land barons are basically the ones who control the land. They The only way you could go hunt there is if you're allowed, invited, or a family descendant of a land baron. It's not it's not how we created it. And sure. then it affects the thing that we've been talking about for a long time, which is less hunters, less PR funds, industry suffers. Yeah. That, that part of it I can deal with, <laughs> I think. I think you say that. And I say that, be, I say that because it. I have, right, I know. Till you see it. I know. And it, it's just a trickle effect, you know, and it's um it's one of those things that I've been saying I've been saying it since COVID. I remember w- when people were talking about, hey, we're selling more hunting license in this and, and during COVID and more fishing license in COVID. It's a false high. Sure. Like you don't think we're actually gonna sustain these. And now I'm switching my tone to the point you don't actually think we can sustain these numbers. Right. Because I don't think we can. I don't think so either. So it's getting to the point. I'm not worried about today's generation of 25 to 55-year-old hunters. I am very concerned about the 6-year-olds to 18-year-olds who are going to walk into a hunting realm unless they have access to private land, unless they have family that owns private land. They're going to walk into a realm of public that they're quickly going to realize hunting sucks. Mm -hmm. It's boring. I don't see anything. I mean, hell, my kids experience that even on private land. How do I hold them? How do I get them to feel like you and I feel and a lot of these listeners feel about hunting? It would be a very, very, very hard battle. And when that generation falters, now you start talking about being the minority of this country and that hunting's at risk. Today, hunting isn't at risk. Nobody's threatening hunting. We're stronger than ever. Six years now from now, 10 years from now, when we fall off this cliff because all of the people that are hunting public land realize, like, 
It there, sucks. Yeah. Now we're in trouble. And and to Rex's point, it will ebb and flow, right? When all those sure. people fall off, guess what comes better? Public land. Yeah. Public land becomes better. As long as we have it. As long as I we have it. I think that's what you're worried about. I am. Yeah. So, and again, I, I say that maybe I'm wrong, but nobody's talking about it. That's why we started this thing. Nobody's talking about these things. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's touchy. Pe- people get agitated when you start talking about private versus public. And, I mean, dude, hunting is just a, uh, an, you know, it's an emotional sport. It's it's ego-driven. You know, we, we want to kill the biggest buck out there in the woods. And so, like, when you start questioning how we do it, you know, or where we're doing it or, you know, anything like that, uh, you know, people just fluff up their chest or, you know. Agree. They just want to. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's a touchy subject, and it's something I'm sure we'll revisit. I know we're trying to work on a couple um, state uh, deer biologists, like heads of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that'll be questions to ask them. And, and But I also know, and it's no knock to them, it's not even their fault, um, a lot of these states will decline our invite because they're not allowed to talk to people like us mm. for these reasons. Well, we should start with... Um PA, we should get PA Game Commission back in here. I've tried. Oh, really? Multiple times. Interesting. Mm, isn't it? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's keep trying. Yep, we, I will. Good. I will. <laughs> Fine. And if anybody thinks I'm wrong, <laughs> tell us. Like, that's the whole point. I want, I want, I, I hope I'm wrong. Let me put it this way. I hope I am wrong about all of these assumptions I'm just trying to talk proactively here that there are more hunters today than 2004. There is a limited resource in the amount of deer. There is a limited resource in the amount of public land. And if you start cramming too many people in these places, the success rate's going to fall. And whether you hunt to kill a deer or you just hunt because you love it, eventually people will quit hunting. And at that point, we're in a bad, bad spot. Yeah. And I mean, dude, wouldn't you? You know, I mean, if I hunted for, yes. you know, five, six, seven years and I was just struggling and struggling, running into guys, not seeing any big deer, like, that's not hunting. Struggle with my own ki- kids of just seeing deer, period. <clears throat> we go out and hunt six days in a row and we don't see a deer, period, or nothing even close to being in range. It's a struggle for a young kid. And that's the, that is the generation I'm worried about for recruitment. I don't, I'm not worried about the 27-year-old who's trying to think about hunting for the first time. They're old enough to say, hey, do you want to hunt or do you do not? I don't need to convince you. You either do or you don't. The six to nine-year-old definitely needs convincing, and they also need support, and they need encouragement, and that usually comes in form of success. Without that, you're going to have a tough time holding them through to the time they're 27. Yeah, no doubt. Just the way it is. So, anyways, uh, we appreciate Sean and Rex Luchtel for being on the Hunter Podcast. Always great to have those guys uh, needs no, um, reminder, but anything you want to check out from Harlem Bowhunter website, YouTube, um, MOTV, Outdoor Sportsman Group, uh, they're kind of everywhere and anywhere, like Sean said, but we'll definitely tune back into those guys here before the beginning of the next season. And, uh, for us, we're going to be checking out and got more content coming for some great guests here in 22. So I hope you stick with us. Later. Take me home.